Well, good morning, good morning, and welcome to the 3CR Gardening Show on this lovely Easter Sunday morning. My name is A.B. Bishop and I'm standing in for Pam Vardy. Joining me in the studio today is one man with so much plant knowledge, I reckon he could open a nursery, and another who totally understands the nitty-gritty and the pros and cons of designing and building a garden, an inner-city garden from scratch. I'd like to welcome James Beatty and Stephen Ryan from Dixonia Rare Plants. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. And it is um, certainly autumn because I'm looking at Stephen through a haze of what sort of plants, Stephen? Autumnal. Autumnal plants. There we go. That's my word of the day. Word of the day. Even your glasses are looking a bit autumnal. Yeah, well, they are actually. They're red as well. Um, (laughs) Yeah, so it's autumn and... I have to say, up in the hills, it's just gorgeous at the moment. Um, you know, the pin oaks are going red and the mm. maples are going scarlet and the elms are going yellow and it's just beautiful. I have a couple of friends, new Melburnians, that moved here from Sydney recently and um, I've been promising to take them up the mountain to see the autumn colour because they've never really seen an autumn in Australia. So, oh, it's yeah. about oh, time they, then. They're, looking they're from Queensland, are they, did you say? Well, Sydney. Oh, and they've, Sydney. They've never really made Close a point enough. of going to have <laughs> yeah, a look yeah. at it. So. Unless you go to the Blue Mountains, I suppose. Yeah, really that's right. But strangely, they hadn't really, they had never really done any of that. So I'm going to take goodness me. check out some They Victorian are missing colour. a whole season. Yeah, I know. It's weird. Yeah, it has been funny, though, because it's been – such a long extended summer that when you now see an autumnal tree, you're kind of like, oh, oh, that's right, it's autumn. Yes, (laughs) I forgot, damn it. Yes, actually, and it's a late autumn. Because we had a fairly damp spring Mm. and early summer, things kept growing. Mm. And so trees and things actually didn't sort of stop so that they could then settle down and get ready for their their winter rest. Mm -hmm. So... I was starting to wonder whether it was going to be any sort of autumn this year because you do get the occasional one where, you know, sort of winter meets late summer Mm. uh, and the trees just sort of virtually shed their leaves and that's the end. Mm. Uh, But it is turning amazingly well and... um, I think we'll get several weeks of pleasure out of it the way things are going. So it's going to be a lovely autumn. And uh, and if we get more weather like we've been getting the last day or two, it, it will be the best time to be out in the garden. Mm, yeah, that, I mean, absolutely. autumn really is the best time that of is. year for that sort of thing, isn't it? It's mm. just those really crisp mornings mm. and then beautiful, long, kind of blue sky days and, um, then, and you can sleep at night because it's cool. Yes, yeah. yes, it is my favourite part of the year. It has to be by, by a long shot. You know, yep, yep. We, we all get excited when the first daffodil flowers and all that nonsense. But uh, <laughs> I have to say uh, autumn for me is, is just the best time. And it's the best time to be out in the garden because it's you the do Busiest time, really, yeah. as well, isn't it? Yeah, there's really lots to do. Think for renovating flower borders and that kind yeah. of stuff, best done at this time of year. Yep. A lot of plants are slowing down, but I'm kind of tearing my hair out going, oh, there's so much I've got to do before. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm just happy that the weeds actually slow down a smidge yeah. in, in, in winter, mm. autumn and winter. So yeah. it's, I mean, of course, there's some that have got their growing season then, but at the moment I'm just like, ooh, I'm starting to get on top of it yeah. you know, with well, a little bit me, of help. For me, I can sit here smugly <laughs> because I've had two events in my garden over the last month. I had the Open Gardens Victoria opening and then I had opera in the garden uh, a weekend or so ago. And so I've worked like a little navvy all <laughs> late summer, early autumn to get the garden into mm. as prime a condition as I possibly can. And now I can rest on my laurels. And I think I can be as smug as I like because <laughs> the garden is looking stunning and I really haven't done any gardening in the last week or so other than just wandering Same around and sort of plucking an odd thing or, you know, just those sort of little things that you would do anyway. Mm. Um, no, 
serious work. But can you actually rest on your laurels, Stephen? Well, probably not because exactly. the garden keeps moving, but I can at least get it for a, a week or two where I can just say, well, I don't have to do anything. Just drink a cup of tea and stare yeah, at it. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. yeah, just wander around the garden. And yeah. uh, uh, it is actually something we should all do. And unfortunately, we get so tied up in the work we've got to do in our gardens that sometimes we forget to actually enjoy them. And... I love the sense of just being able to wander the garden, look at the leaves, um, see how the the autumn bulbs are coming up, you know, all that sort of gentleness in a garden that you can have if you're not sort of completely stressed out by the weeds and other things you've got to do. (laughs) I reckon a a really good tip is to look at your garden through other people's eyes. Yeah. Because if you look at it through your own eyes, you're like, oh, my God, look at that mess over there. Look at those weeds over there. Why did I plant that there? there? (laughs) Whereas if you look at it from someone else's point of view, Mm. you know, occasionally when we have new guests, they're like, oh, I love how you've got this and this in the garden Mm. and those little sculptures over there. I'm just like, oh, yes, you're right. It does look quite nice. Yeah. Yeah, No, you become overcritical because it's your own work. And I think you have to be critical. You can't be... um, you can't be blasé about the whole thing because nobody's garden's perfect. There's always things we can do to improve it, you know, with different plantings or pruning or, you know, there's always something that you could be doing that will make your garden better. So you should be analytical and you should say to yourself, all right, well, how could this look better next autumn or whatever? I mean, yeah. I've actually noticed I've got areas of my garden where I don't think I've got enough autumn colour. Um, so I'm now starting Surely to... Not. Oh, yeah, I, I tell you, this is true. Um, and so, because when is and is too much not enough? Uh, and I think autumn's the season for that. Mm. Uh, so I've been sort of looking around thinking, now, how can I fit something else in there that's going to give me some autumn colour? And if it's going to give me autumn colour, will it do something else valuable another time of the year? Because that's something you can fall for too, where you mm. buy something because it's gorgeous mm. and then realise it is only gorgeous for that three or four weeks of the year, that really brief period. Mm. A lot of flowering plants can be like that, particularly perennials, because Mm. a lot of perennials don't aspire to having stunning foliage, Mm. but they have a mass of flowers for a few weeks each year, and then they're gone. And, in fact, they Mm. spend a lot of time underground, so, in fact, they they actually leave gaps. So you've got to be really analytical about those things and try and, in fact – get more than one season out of a spot, either by having a plant that's multi-purpose or having successive things that sort of work together mm. uh, and, and that can, can work. In fact, that's my topic up at Tesla's next week is uh, successional colour mm. in the garden. Mm. So when I'm up at Tesla's next week, waxing lyrical and catching up with all my friends and things, um, my topic on both days will be successional colour because I think that's something that we don't do well here because we're inclined to be a bit lackadaisical about things because we can enjoy a garden all year. Mm. Whereas you go to England where a lot of people put their gardens to bed for the winter and they just sit and inside literally reading. they wrap them up, don't they, and yeah. frostbite. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right, exactly. Go and then they sleep. sit inside reading seed catalogues for the rest of the season. Um, and so they feel the need to get concentrated colour right from the first day of spring right through to the last day mm. of autumn. To squeeze uh, as much in as possible. Yeah, whereas we say, oh, well, we can be out in the garden all the time, so mm. that's going to be pretty at that time of the year, but the rest of the year we don't look at it. Um, and also we tend to have reasonable-sized gardens in Australia, although that is getting rarer. Um, so you can sort of be a bit profligate with space, but it's really nice to have a sense that things are working all the time. Mm. So, so I'm looking for other things that I can put into the garden that in certain areas where there's a lack of interest in the autumn that will also give me things that are going to be interesting at some other part of the year so, that, so they will pay their way. Well, I live in an environmental living zone and it's 
we can only plant natives. So I have to get my autumnal fix from other places. We're not allowed dogs or cats either, so I have to get my pet fix from other from other people's animals as well. So uh, I get my So you've got to go autumnal, cuddle, a, cuddle a kitty yeah, somewhere else. Uh, and, underneath and, a, an, an autumn tree. Yes. <laughs> yeah, well, I guess that's a, a choice you've made, though, because you wanted to live in that environment, so yeah. that's fine. If somebody tried to impose that on me where I live now, uh, I think I'd be a little annoyed. Yeah. Uh, you know, because where I'm growing and, uh, and loving my plants is an area that's been horticulturally important for 150 years and it's been about collecting and having and, mm. and acquiring as many different plants from all over the world as you can. And so some of our beautiful Mount Macedon gardens would never have happened if we had, in fact, those sort of impositions put upon us so Mm. it's fine to live in those areas when that's what you want Mm. um, but you don't necessarily want people imposing upon an area things that weren't traditionally part of that area Mm. and that is an issue we have in our shire because a lot of people who are buying blocks now that and there's not so many up on mount macedon anymore there's only a handful of vacant blocks but when they take down some trees to fit their house into the block they're told they have to plant a whole pile of natives back yeah and that's and not always the best it's not in yeah, some places approach. it's, it's mm, ridiculous I agree I mean, with that. there's a, a, a property down the bottom of mount macedon where a new home was built recently and it's right next door to one of our parks that is all exotic trees it's mm. full of liquid ambers pin oaks you know uh, conifers, the the whole exotic tree thing, mm-hmm. and they've been told to plant wattles and blackwoods and uh, and and eucalypts and things, and it looks com- and it's got a big property on the other side that's all exotic as well, mm. um, and it actually looks out of place. It's interesting, isn't it? It's like the heritage buildings, yeah. You know, in in Carlton and and whatnot, you know, and if you pull down a building, you have to put one up that's you know in keeping with the with the area. You'd think in somewhere like Macedon, you'd have to plant trees that are in keeping with the heritage. Yeah, of but the apparently flora. not. Apparently, mm. the council has decided, all right, we've got to get environmentally friendly, which is fair enough. But why uh, does that mean natives exclusively? I yeah. want to know why that translates. Yeah, it's, I always, know. it's always intrigued me. I'm not sure why it's... Actually, James, you're really getting me going. <laughs> um, <laughs> the thing that really makes my blood boil is that I tell you you have to plant natives, but they don't talk about them being locally provenanced and endemic. Mm. Which are so what is the themselves. point in planting exactly. a Western Australian grevillea yeah. mm. at Mount Macedon? You might as well plant a New Zealand flax because it's closer. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it makes no logical sense. And, in fact, it can actually be counterproductive because by planting that exotic native, Mm. if that's a term, you could actually be mucking up the gene pool of your local grevillea or whatever else by bringing in a plant that's got pollen that could cross with something that you've got growing locally. Whereas if you plant an apple tree, you can't do any harm. Mm. So I think sometimes we get into a point where... um, People are on this sort of higher moral ground thing. When they haven't really thought about it. No, and they well. really haven't got the knowledge yeah. and the background to understand yep. it. And, and on that genetic level as well, like bringing, in, bringing in an outside species that's not endemic to the area, you, you, can, you can pollute the gene pool for those well, other, those other yeah. local species, and yeah. that's a big issue if well, they don't become weeds themselves. Well, you know. and that's the other thing. You know, just because it's an Australian native, it doesn't mean it can't go weedy. No, that's um, right. And, in fact, I had a quite a long discussion with some people who are friends of a, a little park down in Riddles Creek, which is basically basically native. It's a sort of a little native park and it's charming. Uh, and they were talking about their re-vegging and planting and they're starting to plant things that come from, you know, sort of 100 miles further north because they'll cope with the heat better. Yes. And I'm going, yes, it's it's, it's it's an emerging field in um, in population genetics with Indigenous species. Um, it's called composite composite seed sourcing, where they are, they are sourcing seed for like species that are in areas where the climate of 
your local area is yeah. expected to shift to in the next hundred years or so as a way of trying to breed a bit of resilience into those local populations. Mm. It's an intriguing idea, but yeah. I, I don't know. I can see it being a, full of pitfalls yeah. too. I mean, it could be a real, yeah, potentially to, a real to issue. Do it, to do it well, they need to do trials to minimise things like outbreeding depression and, and yeah. things. Well, uh, and I did point out to these people, you know, that you do realise you could be mucking up your local gene pool and all that sort of stuff, and they went, <clears> oh? Yeah, right. You know, they it's not something that had actually it. even come into their sort mm. of thinking. Mm. Uh, they thought they would – and look, you know, give them credit. They were trying to do something lovely, but they thought they were doing the right thing mm. when, in fact, they could potentially be doing exactly the wrong mm. thing. And so, yeah, so you do have to have really strong knowledge of what you're playing with when you start to sort of introduce plant material into an area. Mm. Um, and as I said, if it's, if it's exotic, it's likely to do less – problems it could still go weedy but it's likely to do less problems because it's not going to be compatible with mm. your local gene pool so you're not going to get a uh, rhododendron crossing with a grevillea or something like that um, so in some ways it can be safer to go completely outside of the uh, floor of the country you're working in yeah. so and, and i think people need to look at it in a slightly more holistic way i think we get this sort of oh well it's native it must mm. be good and you know, in some cases it really is, but you know, in some cases it can be just exactly the wrong thing to do. I think, from the point of view of the plant actually being able to succeed, you know, so many Australian plants are you know drought tolerant and don't need a lot of fertilizer yeah. and all those sorts of things. So, from those points of view, it's fantastic. Sure, you're not going to be needing to water your plant mm-hmm. much, but I also think ecologically we don't know all the relationships that exist yeah. between yeah, the, the and you, fauna yeah. and plants. We just we just don't know. So even if you people can't are replicate to do the right those thing, things, yeah, you just you can't replicate them yeah. so yeah yes it is it's an it's an interesting concept and of course you know we worry about exotic weeds and they're weeds particularly because they do come from habitats very much like our own mm. uh, and so they actually acclimatize quite well so there's plenty of exotic plants mm. that in fact are every bit as tough and sometimes even tougher than the natives that they're being planted amongst and a really interesting example of that was there's a, a hill that i look at from my nursery called mount tarong and it's very rocky, and it has just sort of pockets of soil all the way up the hills. And every time there's a really bad drought cycle, uh, patches of eucalypts die out mm. because they, they've just not got enough um, soil there and they can't get down to, to groundwater properly. So in the 65 drought, great swathes of Mount Tarong died. Uh, in the early 80s drought, the same thing happened again. But you know what survived on the mountain there? Pinus radiata. Course, and it didn't yeah. seem to matter where the radiata was growing. You didn't see a dead one. They all survived. Yeah, right. And, of course, they come from California. They come from dry, arid areas. Mm. They're obviously in some ways even more adapted to the sort of climate that mm. Mount Tarong could throw at mm. them than, in fact, what the native vegetation was, mm. which is somewhat weird and frightening in some ways. But mm. uh, And that's why some plants from other parts of the world become weedy because they really are very well adapted. Yeah. And a good example of a native weed as well is um, about about 30 years ago, a lot of the a lot of the growers around the, the Hurstbridge area, up near where you are, AB, um, they started growing what they thought was silver wattle. Um, it actually turned out to be acacia decurrens, and a lot of people took them out and planted them in their gardens. And now it's a pretty major weed around that area. Mm. You know, it popped up in in huge numbers after the fires went through King Lake. Um, oh yes, and yeah. so you know that's that's a that's an example of you know people might plant now it because it's a native raise, and they think yeah, it's good. But that does raise another interesting conundrum. <clears throat> You've got a, a native species of plant that supplanted perhaps some other native species of plants mm. that were filling basically the same environmental niche. Mm. Um, 
is that wattle actually being a real problem, mm. as in because it's now somewhere where it wasn't originally growing, or is it still just filling the niche? The same niche as the yeah, as, same as the, niche as, the, as some like others species. might have. Because mm. the other thing you've got to remember about the environment, and this is something people tend to forget too, is that it is a uh, an evolving, changing thing. You know, plants are scary things. They're out there trying to take over the territory of a plant nearby. Mm. So it's not a stable thing. It's a dynamic thing. Mm. And so plants are forever trying to push outside the barriers of their their normal habitat. And if they manage to do so through the vector of a human being, is that any different than if a bird picks up a seed and takes it to another area Mm. and that then naturalises in that area? Mm. Uh, It it sort of would be like um, a bird flock of birds being blown to New Zealand from Australia, they could be then seen as new natives. Mm. But if I took a cage of them across and released them, I would create exactly the same (laughs) thing, but they'd immediately be considered feral. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and so yes, yeah, so I think we need to look at the ecology and the environment in a in a slightly more broad sense. I, I think, think it's we, most of the time we think we're we're separate from it. Oh yeah, and, and, and that, that's we, the and that we can yeah. control it. Yeah. But we're, we want to we're put a it part back. of it and we influence it, whether we yeah. like it or not and whether we mean to or not. It yeah, happens, well, it happens look, anyway. Even just buying a, a bush block and building a house in it, you've changed the environment mm. by building mm. the house mm. uh, and putting in a driveway and garage and whatever else, what other infrastructure you need. So then you have to rationalise how much you're going to be able to keep and put back of the old environment Mm. whilst creating a new one. Mm. In lots of ways, I put a little bit of the old environment back at my place yeah. about about eighteen months ago. Um, I turned my nature strip over to um, local grassland species. Ah, yes. So I've got a couple of a couple of local grasses and lots of little bits and pieces of um, seasonal colour. It ma- mainly happens in the springtime, but there's yeah. little bits at other time of year as well. And they've just done they've just done fabulously. I, you haven't I, had anybody come along and say mow that bloody no grass. no no. <laughs> a lot of people kind of stop and take a closer look, and some some delight further still by asking questions yeah. which is great um, but I gave it a I gave it its yearly whippersnip the other day and I was out there weeding yesterday or the day before mm. and I noticed my I planted some little indigenous orchids little green hoods ah, yes. um, terra stylus nutrients I think and They've started to come back again this year, which I'm very excited oh, about. Right. Well so done. they're looking they're looking really good. They're getting a little bit a little bit attacked by some something, probably some little mollusk or something yeah, like that. Yeah, but there'll be a slug or a snail out there. I was very they excited love those to orchids. see them coming back. Yeah, um, yeah. Well, that's so. a challenge to get native mm, orchids to mm, reestablish. Mm, so it that's, is that's really well done. I always think it's probably a fungal association. So I really let mm. the I really let the native grasses establish well mm. before I even thought about you know planting any orchids. Um, and it seems to have it seems to have worked. The green hoods, you know, they're probably the more robust of the ones mm. that you can grow at home. Um, but yeah, that's it's looking it's looking really good, and it's you know. And do you think they the orchids appreciated the whippersnippering of the other grasses? Well, I, spe- I specifically or? did it at this time of year because yeah. I wanted to give them room, and I, so I could see them coming back. Yeah. Um, so I, I had a rough idea of where I'd planted them, so I went a bit harder with the whippersnipper in those areas. And then left it a week or two. We had that big deluge of oh, rain yeah. in the meantime, and that's just kicked everything along. So there's been a lot of seed recruitment. The orchids are coming back. Um, you know, the grasses are coming back. And it's looking like it's going to be another really, really good year. So, and you don't water at all, do you? No, no, yeah. So Na- how long has it taken to establish fully? It's it's about 18 months. Yeah. And, and within within... Six months of planting, it looked fantastic, um, and then its second, its second spring, it just went absolutely bucko, um, and this will be its this will be its third spring um, this year, and it's it's incredible that 
I think aesthetically, it's a really beautiful thing. We always talk about the Prairie School of Garden Design, yeah. um, and it's it's been it's a huge thing in the last twenty years mm. or so, mm. globally. Um, but we haven't really started to use our local grasses in the same way, mm. you know, or at least develop our own sensibility of of that. Yeah, of how that. it would work in in our sort of environment yeah, with absolutely. our plants. Mm. And the, there were yeah. huge swathes of Victoria that were covered in grassland when European settlement happened, and, and, and there's less than you know one yeah. percent of them left. So, mm. I guess I guess that's a reason why it hasn't entered the popular consciousness. I think there's because also there's so little to go and have a yeah, look at. There is right? that, but I think there's also a different mindset <laughs> here. I remember. Ooh, wow, Way back when the, the sort of um, Van Sweden-esque sort of stuff was going on in America mm. and we had one of the uh, landscape design conferences here where James Van Sweden came out and he was showing this these pictures of swathes of tall grasses and things in gardens uh, that he was creating in North America and um, the twin sets and pearl ladies who were all sitting around in the audience were all sort of staring at the screen. And then when we went out for lunch, we were all sitting around on the lawn eating our little packed lunches and these women were going, my husband wouldn't let me do that. Imagine the fire risk and the snakes. <laughs> They're going on. You know, so there was a completely different mindset about that sort of look yeah. with, with an Australian perspective. Mm, mm. Uh, I mean, the North Americans would never think about, you know, fire risk and, and, and snakes. No, no. You know, it just wouldn't come into their consciousness. <laughs> but it was exactly what they were saying. We'd never do that here you know so i think there's a different mindset and to get round that because mm. i mean you can find a snake in the pumpkin patch it doesn't have to be long grass mm. uh so that makes very little <coughs> sense anyway um and yes there might be some fire risks so you have to manage your you know long grasses and things if you're going to keep them mm-hmm. um but yeah we've got to get around the mindset of fires and snakes uh, which other countries don't seem to have. Mm. So it, it's that as well as, as the fact that we just don't see it done here yet. And it's like anything else. If you don't see a plant used in, in, in a good way... Mm. How do you know how to you use it? You don't know how to use it. I mean, I have never yet seen a golden diosome used in a nice way. Um, <laughs> and so I'm still waiting to see it no, done. we but have it, seen a South African designer. Yeah, yes. yes. I can't remember her I name. I can't remember her name either, but she, she, was, on, she was on Gardening Australia oh, a couple yeah. of years ago and she had just basically let them go a bit wild. Yeah. And the, it was just almost a field of them, and they, they were stunning. Yeah. Yeah, oh, well, so. well, see, there you go. It's, and they, that does actually make my point. That, I, I have seen them know, clipped into some pretty funky shapes as yeah, well. Yeah, well, I just is, think of them as, you know. as, as a certain <laughs> large fast food retailer's <laughs> car park plant, um, basically. Um, and so I've, I've never had the inspiration to want to use them well, but I am sure that, you know, almost any plant can be used well. There's a challenge for you, Stephen. Come oh. on, we want a diode. Osborne in your garden, uh, a golden Dalesbury in golden, your garden. Yeah, preferably the very dwarf, very golden one with the <laughs> muddy pink flowers, yes. Um, but, you know, that's the thing. I mean, mm. it's how you use plants that really matters. And, yep. and in my own garden, I use a lot of um, common things as well as rarer plants in my garden. Common? Them, Surely not. Yes, I do. Wash I, your mouth in out. fact, I have lots of those sort of slightly verging on weedy self-seeders that you can get in gardens because I quite like the idea of having to control something in preference to having to mollycoddle it. Yeah. So some you of these pull it self-seeders... It's, it's a good way to garden. Yeah it, yeah, it works quite well. I mean, you know, I get a bit annoyed with forgetting, forget-me-nots when I get covered in their seeds uh, at the end of their season, as do my dogs and cats. Um, but they make great compost and they swathe the ground in blue flowers. They look mm. stunning when they're in flower. Um, and I just pull out what I don't want. Mm. Uh, I'm learning to be a little bit stronger with them so that I don't have as many of them. It's the same with the um, geranium palmatum, which is sort of a 
it's smaller than geranium matarensi, but bigger than herb robert geranium robertsianum. Right. Sort of, it's a geranium in the middle, mm-hmm. uh, and it self seeds like there's no tomorrow, and it's got pretty foliage, these little magenta pink flowers, mm. flowers for months, um, and it almost took over my garden at one point because I was just leaving every seedling there because it was filling a gap. Mm. Uh, now I'm being much stronger with it and pulling them out when they're young, so they just go straight in the compost and they're not in seed, so they're not going to put more seed back into the garden, mm-hmm. uh, and just keeping a few. And so those sorts of plants, common as they are, have almost become an integral part of my gardening. Mm. And, of course, anything in the borage family, which forget-me-nots belong to, are fantastic in the compost because mm. they help mm. accelerate the, mm. the composting. Yep. So, you know, dead forget-me-nots make the best compost. <laughs> so, um, yeah, so it's sort of how I garden a bit. So I do have a lot of things that either self-seed or have a tendency to sucker, and then I Control just it. manage them. Yep. Um, I mean, my whole perennial border at the moment is bright scarlet uh, with cutleaf rust, rust pulvinata autumn Lovely. lace group, yeah. and I cut them off to the ground every winter so I treat them like perennials so mm. they only get up to about a metre tall. And the leaves are huge because yeah. they've got a big root system under them so they send up these big strong stems. And the whole border is brilliant scarlet at the Gorgeous. moment, just in bits all the way through it. <clears throat> it's not <clears throat> taken over <clears throat> the border. Possibly it's- one of my favourite Autumn plants, actually, oh, yeah. yeah. It's and before somebody rings in and says you can't plant rust because people are allergic to it, this one you're not. <laughs> I'll point that out straight off. Uh, and, in fact, the rust that people are allergic to is now no longer a rust. It's now Toxicodendron sicidiana, which is a very useful name for it. Uh, it is and it's it still a beautiful it tree. Uh, but, yeah, some people get rather nasty rashes from it. But the other rust that I grow in the garden at home, although it might sucker all over the place, which might frighten some people, it's perfectly benign. <laughs> so it, it's not an issue because I have to explain that to everybody when they say, what's that? Mm. And I say, oh, it's a rust. And you see people, it's like, oh, out. would you like this tube? of bubonic plague. <laughs> you know, they, they sort of leap back. Oh, my God. What is that plant? Oh, that's just cowpox. That's yeah, fine. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Exactly. You know, so, yeah, so, yeah, so you've got that sort of issue that you have to deal with with some mm. poor plants. But I just love plants that have that sort of zest for life. Rice paper plants, another thing I use a lot of in the garden at home because it suckers all over the place. And you've got these humongous, big, beautiful leaves mm. and these great big tall stems. You feel like rushing inside, putting on that leopard skin lap lap and go swinging through the trees. <laughs> And now there's a oh, visual for everybody, yeah. <laughs> On that note, let's get to some Oh, yes, we should do some answers, yes. Uh, so this is the 3CR Gardening Show. My name's A.B. Bishop and with me in the studio, James Beatty and Stephen Ryan. So the following uh, few announcements are all uh, through the Royal Horticultural Society of Victoria. Uh, so you can jump on their website if you need more details. And that website is www.rhsv.org.au. Uh, so the first one is um, the th- this weekend, uh, Mornington Peninsula Bonsai Society, 38th Annual Easter Bonsai Show. This is at the Belcom Grammar, 389 Nepean Highway in Mount Martha. From uh, today, it's from 10 o'clock to 4 o'clock. Cost adults is $5, pensioners is $3, and children with adults are free. Um, as you would expect, there's a magnific- magnificent display of bonsai, continuous demonstrations of shaping and repotting bonsai, which would, I reckon would be fabulous mm. to watch. Um, and you can meet and talk with any of the uh, bonsai experts. If you need further information on that, besides going to the Royal Horticultural Society of Victoria website, you can also call 0407 361 989. 
Also on this weekend is the Bendigo Bonsai Club annual Easter show, and that's at the Uniting Church Hall in Forest Street, Bendigo, uh, from 10 o'clock till 5 o'clock, and it's also on Monday from 10 till 4. Will you see the trees for the forest? (laughs) (laughs) Yes, because they're quite little. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, dear. Uh, The cost for the uh, Bendigo one is $3 for adults, children free. Um, Again, of course, a fantastic display of bonsai. Um, and well-stocked sales tables um, with all your bonsai needs, including trees. Uh, you can call David on 0409 395 605. Uh, April the 29th, <clears throat> the Australian Plant Society Yarra Yarra Group um, is having its native plant sale. Uh, that's at the Senior Citizen Centre, 903 Main Road in Eltham. Um, huge range of native and indigenous plants, including short and tall grafts, includes Latrobe Wildlife Sanctuary Nursery, members, growers, natural plants, scapers, filthorn, and plants from Sun Valley and Nakabunda. That Latrobe Nursery is where I got a lot of my stuff for my oh, nature strip from. Okay. That's a great That's a little place. That's a fantastic nursery, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. Mm. Um, if you want further details on that, 94397228. Uh, the on April twenty nine to thirty, the Bendigo Goldfields Chrysanthemum Association is having the Australian Chrysanthemum and Floral Art Championships. It's at the Bendigo Exhibition Centre in the Bendigo Showgrounds from nine till four on Saturday, from nine till three on Sunday, and cost is three dollars. Uh, biggest chrysanthemum show in Victoria, featuring a wide variety of types and forms. Um, the Floral Art Championships have a dual theme of China the Anniversary and China the Country. Uh, plant sales and light refreshments and a raffle. Contact Carol on 0438 439 108. Uh, also on April 29 to 30, the Friends of the Royal Botanic Gardens have got their um, autumn plant sale at Royal Botanic Gardens, Melbourne, Gate E, Birdwood Drive, South Yarra, from 10 till 4 on Saturday and from 10 till 3 on Sunday. Free entry, many unusual plants, some sourced from the Botanic Gardens, uh, and the listings are available on the website the week prior to the sale. You can um, call for further information, 9650-6398. Um, one more for me. On April 23rd, um, we've got Echoes of the Past, which um, is the reopening of the ladies' kiosk at um, the Geelong Botanic Gardens, mm. which looks really quite cute. I love the Geelong Botanic Gardens. Yeah, it's, it's a great it's spot. really beautiful. That, that's the little... Um, <clears throat> the little uh, oh, la- ladies' kiosk. And um, so they're suggesting that you get dressed up and come down. Put on your whalebone yes, corset. exactly. Yep, yep. And, um, <laughs> Goodness me. Come along and be Where dressed. is mine? I can't remember where I left it. So that's Sunday the 23rd of April, 10.30am till 3 o'clock, Eastern Park, off Holt Road in Geelong. This is a free community event to celebrate the refurbishment of the historic ladies' kiosk. The event will host activities such as National Trust Heritage Games, musical entertainment, including the Descam Jazz Band and the Sea of Ukes Ukulele Band, period costume competition, guided walk, um, MC is Colin Mockett, bring a BYO picnic, drinks, rug and chairs, and no grog. And um, if you want further information on that, you can call the Friends Office on 5 
222 or go to their website, which is the W's, friendsgbg.org.au. Over to you, James. I've just got a couple of open gardens that are coming up. Um, Five David Street in Monbok is open on the 22nd and 23rd of April, 10 a.m. to 4.30 p.m., um, entry is $8, $5 for students. There'll be refreshments, plants for sale, um, live music as well, and representatives from the Australian Plant Society will be there to help with any questions or IDs that you might want. And um, it looks like quite a looks like quite a good garden, actually. Um, quite a large one. It's by um, Shirley, Shirley Kahn. Um, the garden's only three years old, but it's already brimming with a, a hell of a lot of Australian native plants. Um, Shirley's a, a plant collector, um, but the gardens are, are, says it's a cohesive showcase of her confidence in balancing colours, shapes and textures. Uh, this garden has a wonderful sense of place nestled in the Dandenongs with the beautiful borrowed landscape of the bush and hills in the distance. Um, lots of nice plants in the garden by the sounds of it, um, and there will be lots of uh, other gardeners and experts there to answer any queries that people might have. By the look of it, and looks we've like got a, good one. a double pass a, to give away. A double pass one. to give away, so people are ringing in for that. Yeah, yeah. They? So just ring in, yep. and um, yeah, one one double pass to give away from the open gardens. What is what's the number? What is our phone number here? Our number is nine four one nine zero one double five. Very good. Well done. Oh, dear. Well, I've got a couple here. Now, there's another Australian Plant Society autumn plant sale coming up on Saturday. The 29th of April, and it's the Mornington Peninsula Group. Um, it's at Sea Winds, the Arthur's Seat uh, State Park, Purvis Road, uh, Arthur's Seat, and the Melways reference for those who still use a Melways <laughs> is 159E12. And um, uh, there's no entry fee, um, so just tootle along there on Saturday the 9th. If you want more information about it, you could go on to the uh, Morning Peninsula um, uh, website, which is apsmorningtonpeninsula, all one word, dot org, or phone 0402 842 And the other one that I want to mention this morning is down at our fantastic botanic gardens in Cranbourne. They've got the Backyard Aussie Trees all-day workshop coming up, which costs $65 for friends, $70 for non-members and $30 for students. And they've got a stellar group of um, specialists talking about Trees other than the obvious native trees, basically. So it does say here something about it's more about more than just wattles and gums. Mm. Um, and we do. We have a really serious array of fantastic plants. So uh, uh, David Cantrell will be speaking. Um, Alistair Watt, who's a, a conifer collector from way back, will be looking at the Australian conifers. Greg Moore will be there. Uh, Roger Elliott, of course, will be there. Uh, John Thompson. Um, so a whole range of speakers. So it sounds like it's going to be a fantastic day. Um, so if people want more information on that, they can go to the um, website, which is rbgfriendscranburnalloneword.org.au and click on the events and scroll down to Backyard Trees. Or you could ring, and I assume during office hours, uh, on 97253569. 
So there we go. Beautiful. I guess we should also mention the Teslas. Oh, yes, of course. Yes. Next weekend, um, <coughs> Tesla's Rare Plant Fair up at, um, at Sylvan. Uh, it's a great weekend. There's lots of suppliers of all sorts of different plants and horticultural products. Uh, you can get to talk to the growers. Um, uh, I've got a couple of pictures of things that I can't figure out that I'm taking up there to show a friend of mine <laughs> who knows all about the particular group of plants that I'm, <laughs> I'm a little bit rusty on. Uh, so I'll be up there getting some information myself. Um, uh, we have a speaker's tent where there are speakers uh, not right from the beginning of the day to the end but during the main part of the day we have a range of speakers talking on all sorts of different topics Um, and as I mentioned earlier I'll be talking about sort of successional colour in in the garden and and how to achieve it and what sort of things to look for. and uh, yeah, so and there's food, there's coffee, you know, all the usual things. Uh, so come up and see us at um, Tesla's. There's plenty of off-street car parking up there, and uh, yeah, you'll have a lovely time. It's yeah. a good day out. I've, I've been the last couple yeah. of years. It's a good, good little yeah. festival. It's yeah. got like sort it. of a nice country feel about it, you know. And it's although they get quite good crowds, they tend to spread out through the place. You never feel completely sort of hemmed in. Mm. Um, and it's within the grounds of the Tesla's garden, which is a charming garden too. So. Mm. You've got they've got lovely trees and lovely autumn perennials in flower. You won't see a tulip in flower, I don't think. But you know, nonetheless, you'll see lots <laughs> and lots see of other things. Yeah, you'll see photos <laughs> of them when you go to buy your bags of yeah. tulip bulbs. Um, so um, yeah, so it's definitely a thing to put in your calendar for next weekend. Yeah, and so that's at three five seven Monbolk Road in Sylvan. Yeah, yeah. Yep. So if you get into Monbolk and you head out towards the dam. Uh, it's signposted rather well. They have big signs all the way in and, and you'll find your way in quite easily. Yep, fantastic. Well, we should invite uh, listeners to join us if you've got a gardening question. Um, with me in the studio are Stephen Ryan from Dixonia Rare Plants and James Beatty. Um, our number is 94190155. So now, first most important question, favourite autumn tree? Oh, <laughs> don't okay. make me choose. Favourite autumn tree? Top ten favorite autumn. Yeah, I could do. Yeah, yeah, I could possibly do top ten, but yeah, top tree. I mean, too hard. Too hard. Yeah. And and of course, it's also dependent on whether you've got space to put it in, and you know whether it's a right appropriate tree for your own garden. I mean, yeah, I can have right. a tree that I think is stunning, but I'd probably never Somewhere plant else. one. Yep. Mm. Uh, I'll go and visit it at somebody else's mm. place. So there's lots of different uh, things you could put into the scenario mm. to suggest what your favorite trees are. And of course, where I come from. I can grow almost any autumnal tree, whereas if you're in Melbourne, then that does limit you a little bit because mm. some of the things that we rely on for good colour at Mount Macedon may not colour well in Melbourne. Uh, so there's lots of if, buts and maybes. I like, I like the, the sumacs as a, as a group for yeah. autumn colour. I think they give really nice colour. But yeah. I also love Ace Grissium, the paperback oh, maple. Stunning tree. Just Beautiful. absolutely gorgeous. Yeah. yeah, that's a must-have tree. If you're looking for a smallish tree, mm. you do have to be patient with it. You do. Not, not the you world's do. fastest yeah. growing tree. I got given a wee seedling by Simon Rickard when I visited yeah. his garden that it just oh. popped up and he's like, all right, we'll dig that up and we'll give it to you. And it's like, great, great. So I planted, well took, it, took it home and planted it and it shot in spring and I came out one morning with my cup of tea and an earwig or something had just nipped <laughs> the top off it and I just thought... Yes, those things in gardening that really get one stander up. (laughs) Yeah, so So that was the end of that. Yeah, but you're right. Asa Grisium is is another great one. And it has the potential sort of side of it that um, actually for me is quite important, and that is that they're not that easy to get. There's something that's a little bit unusual. Mm. You're not going to have something in your garden that everybody else down the street's got. Mm. And that 
comes into my scenario of, of selecting best trees because mm. I don't want my garden to be full of the same mm. stuff everybody else grows. And if anybody on this radio station ever says, walk around the street, see what everybody else is planting and plant some of those that's bound to work, <laughs> I'll smack them because uh, it's a cop-out. Um, and... Yeah, it might actually be true. I mean, if you go around the street, see what everybody else is growing uh, and plant some of those, it is likely to work. But then you're just going to have the same garden as everybody else. Mm. So, But um, thinking thinking laterally about the question as well, you know, if we broaden it to favourite autumn plants, mm-hmm. um, uh, there's a garden not that far from me that the dog and I always go and visit this time of year. Um, because it's got these two massive clumps of amaryggias that are flowering in oh, full yes. flight at the moment. Now, they're, they're a cross between um, uh, Amaryllis belladonna and um, Brunsvigia josephine. Mm. A lot of the crosses were, were crossed with Brunsvigia orientalis, but mm. this is clearly one of the early crosses that was made with, with Brunsvigia josephine because... It's got the inflorescence like like Josephine, yeah, but sort of it's got an electric pink colour. Yeah. Mm. And these the clumps of these bulbs are there's a, there's at least half a dozen flowering stems in each clump. No, oh, and the, the clumps are massive. So I, I'm thinking they've probably been there for fifty or sixty yeah. years um, <laughs> at least. And they just erupt out of the ground this time of year and in full flower. The inflorescence stands over a metre off the ground and it's, it's very wide, it's very dramatic. It looks like a, looks like a little firework has gone off close yeah. to ground level or something like that and just absolutely stunning, absolutely stunning and arresting. Uh, and which garden was that in? <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm a, I'm a bit like that as well because yeah. I think, well, there's so bloody many in that garden that yeah. I keep on trying to catch someone's eye and go, yeah. well, well, well you know, you know, I, they you might know. do a bit better if you split them up, actually. Yeah, yeah you yes, can and give I can me one as well. Because yes. <laughs> uh, they, they can take an incredibly long time to get to a flowering stage. Yeah, you know? so but if there's a big clump, that's been there a long time. A very, very long time. Yeah. And there's, there's a whole lot of um, haymanthus coccinius. Now, you need to keep an eye on that property for Sales sign goes up, or or and they the start getting up the garden. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. I will be They're too in precious. there like Oprah on a baked ham. I'll yeah. be bang. Yeah, I'll be. I'll be. Definitely getting that. Yeah, but yeah. they're just they're just gorgeous. Mm. I, I really love them. So that's you know, probably one of my favourite autumn mm. plants as well. Not a plant that mm. I own, but I hope to one day. Yes, yeah. yes. Yeah. Well, I wouldn't even know where to start, but I, there are a couple of plants I will mention that aren't the ones on the table here in front of me, which we might use later. And there's a lot. And there's a few. <laughs> um, but uh, for those in Melbourne who are looking for a nice, moderate-sized tree that will give them good autumn colour, I've got two suggestions to make. One is the Chinese pistachio. Mm-hmm. It's just such a good little tree. I mean, it's tough and hardy. It colours well in Melbourne. Uh, it makes a lovely little shade tree. It's just perfect for a small suburban block. Uh, it's shade is nice and dappled. Uh, it doesn't seem to have a root system that's overly invasive. You or get difficult. a really good range of colour off it as yeah, well. Yeah, it don't does. You? It colours mm. it, and it and it holds its leaves quite well. So it's certainly a tree I would consider. Uh, certainly not one of the rarest trees. I mean, they're out and about a fair bit, but it's still a lovely tree. Uh, and the other one, which is much more difficult to get, uh, that I think needs to have its time in the sun, so to speak, uh, is the Chinese quince, Cydonia sinensis, which oh, for a long time was sold as pseudo-Cydonia sinensis, but apparently the Chinese botanists have decided there's not enough difference, so they've whacked it back in with Cydonia. I prefer the fruit off of that than, than yeah. the, you know, the fruit's typical fabulous. culinary quince. Yeah. I think it's got a better flavour and yeah, a better a, consistency. It's a stronger flavour. Yeah. Uh, there's I something about it. it. But you get these huge yellow fruit which ripen mm. in late summer and look fantastic hanging on the tree if you don't do anything with them. Mm. You get attractive pink blossom that's not, it's not like one of those sort of flossy sort of 
early crabapple-y things that sort of bear with masses of pink all over it and looks like Barbara Cartland in a <laughs> screaming fit um, uh, because it's, it comes out in leaf first and then it's rich pink flowers are dotted all over the tree which is quite pretty uh, in the autumn its leaves can go every shade from yellow to burgundy and it sort of tends to be the paler colours inside going to the richer colours on the outside and as if that wasn't enough because you're getting spring blossoms summer fruit and autumn colour with age the tree grows into a lovely gnarly shape mm. and its bark is every bit as good as a crepe mm. myrtle mm. Uh, so you get good bark good flowers good foliage uh, it's hardy it's a really tough little tree. I've, uh, I know of one that was growing in a, in a front garden in Doncaster, which was up on a hill <laughs> facing into everything, and mm. it just grew superbly. Mm. Um, and so the Cydonia sinensis is a tree worth looking out for because it actually covers a lot of those things I said before about having something that's nice autumn colour, but does it pay for its way at other times of the year? And I really can't think of what this tree could do to make it any better. Mm. So uh, it just has everything. And the nice thing about having a small autumn tree is that you get to appreciate the foliage mm. quite low down, don't you? Rather well, that's the, the other thing. A lot of your good autumn foliage tends to be on a towering forest yep. giant, yep. you know, sort of a 50-foot liquid amber or something, mm. uh, which is all very spectacular. But I actually do like some autumn colour down sort of more at eye level. Mm. So mm. a smaller tree that you can sort of go in and get personal with uh, I think is lovely. So there's two suggestions I'd make of what I think are two seriously good one common but one less common autumn tree for a suburban garden. Mm, mm. But, I mean, even if you've got a larger garden, the smaller trees are fantastic. Oh, you still need them. You've got them. a small garden room. Mm. Yeah. You know, you don't, you don't yeah, have you to don't have need a big to. tree just because you've yeah. got a big garden. And I might add, too, people who've got small gardens don't necessarily have to plant tiny trees. You know, a tree is only a tree, I reckon, if it gets above your spoutings. If it doesn't get above <laughs> your spoutings, it's a shrub. Uh, so, was it, One of my horticulture lecturers when I was at Hort School said, um, if you want to know the difference between a tree and a shrub, call an arborist. And when they come over your house, if they climb it, it's a tree. And if they don't, it's a <laughs> shrub. <laughs> I quite like that definition. Yeah, I think that's quite good. But, yeah, I regularly get people who come into the nursery and they say, I want a tree for the lawn. And they say, how tall do you want it to grow? And they say, two metres. And I say, no, you don't. You want a shrub. <laughs> or you need to rethink this. Because, you know, especially with trees, I mean, most trees we plant, we tend to lift the canopy up a bit so that we can get under them. If the tree's only going to get to two metres tall, how can you lift the canopy high enough to get under the tree? So you've got to have enough balance above the canopy or of the canopy above to balance what you've pruned up below mm-hmm. so that you can then double layer things or, or move across your lawn without getting whacked in the head by the tree. Um, so, you know, I think trees start at about five metres and right. go up. Right, you know, it's another way of de- <laughs> defining them, uh, and you don't necessarily have to have a little tr- a little tree because your garden's small. I'd rather have one decent tree mm. than several shrub with with delusions of grandeur. Uh, it, it, some shrubs like Viburnum opulus give you good autumn colour as well. Oh, they can give you very good very autumn colour. Spring yeah. flower as well. Yeah. So, and you know, and if you buy one. ones that aren't sterile forms that have the lace cap flowers, you also get beautiful berries. Mm. So, yeah, so you, again, you can get multiple things out of it. Mm-hmm. Well, I have to say Viburnum opulus is not one of the most elegant shrubs. No, it's a bit... It's, it's a, a bit... bit Buffy, scraggly. And yeah, that, yeah. yeah. There's yeah. something about it doesn't really sort of turn me on shape wise. But it's I forget dishevelled elegance or something. Yeah, yeah, something like that. Mm. Yeah, shabby chic. Maybe. <laughs> um, so yeah, so some of those viburnums are lovely, but yeah, the ones with the tabulated branches, I prefer for shape. They're a bit more structured. Mm. Yeah, yeah. yeah mm. They've got something really going for them, so they're beautiful. Mm. What about what you, Ab? What are your favourites? Oh well, I mean, coming from where I do, I mean, the the tree that is my sort of autumn tree in a way is actually the um, Kurrajong, yeah, okay. which 
is not traditionally a deciduous tree, but it, the leaves at some time of the year, they do turn yellow and then they all drop simultaneously at the same time that the new leaves appear. Yeah. So it's never really bare for any period of time, mm-hmm. but just for that fact alone, it's quite spectacular. Mm-hmm. And, and just seeing everything drop and then just, you know, all the leaves are kind of yellow and a bit dismal and then all of a sudden they're just covered in these yeah. delightful And actually some evergreen leaves, plants so. do that. I mean, yeah. I've actually bought, speaking of verburnums, I actually bought one along today that does that sort of thing. Verburnum japonicum, it's an evergreen shrub with really glossy, shiny foliage, but its old leaves go sort of a really bright sort of pink before they shed. So you have a combination of green and, and, mm. and pinky colours uh, on an evergreen shrub. Uh, so you do get some autumnal colour because it's inclined to shed its old leaves in the autumn. Um, and you get white flowers, you get red berries, uh, you get glossy foliage. So it does lots. Mm. And uh, I don't know why this particular viburnum is not more grown. I mean, one of my least favourite shrubs would have to be viburnum tinus, yeah. uh, the old loris tinus bush. I think it's just so overused and it's normally full of bloody red spider mite or something. <laughs> and, uh, <coughs> and they and they planted, uh, you know, ad nauseum. Uh, and you can't say anything more about it than it's useful. Which is damning it's, with faint mm, praise, of mm. course. It's a blob with little flowers. Yeah, really, and so it? I just don't get why so many people plant viburnum tinus. I when, guess it doesn't die know, very easily. That's, yeah, that's... but it can hang around looking scruffy for an awfully long time. <laughs> uh, I actually quite prefer plants that make up their mind and die quickly than something that lingers around looking disgusting in my garden for years upon years because it takes the indecision out of things. I've suddenly got a gap. Um, but, yeah, so viburnum japonicum is actually an evergreen with autumn colour. Yeah, right. And there's quite a number of plants that do that. I've got this weird thing from China, which I can't find very much information on. It's a small tree that, uh, uh, in fact, Alistair Watt, who's the guy who's coming to talk about gymnosperms at the um, conference at Cranbourne, gave it to me as a, uh, as a, I think it was a sucker or a layer or something that mm. he created off his own tree. It's a thing called Itoa sinensis. Uh, and I can only find one reference to it in a in a book from England uh, where they say it's sort of hardy in Cornwall. Um, So it hasn't really caught on in in (laughs) England either. But so far, mine's got up to about two and a half metres tall, reasonably upright conical little tree at this stage. Um, Its leaves are huge. It's got sort of leaves that would be, you know, 20 centimetres long probably, glossy bright green. It's evergreen. Mm -hmm. But in the autumn, about a quarter of the leaves turn bright red. Mm. And, and it's the only thing it seems to do. I, the reference to its flowers would suggest that when it does flower, I'm not going to be blown away. Right. It's just little green things. Um, Have and you got it in the ground or in a pot? It's, it's in the ground. Yeah. Uh, it's in a sheltered spot in my garden at home. It does get a little nipped by the frost when we get a really heavy frost, but it seems to come through all right. Mm-hmm. I've discovered I can strike it from cuttings, so okay. uh, I've struck a few Itoas. Um, and I like the fact that it's got a genus name that's only got four letters. <laughs> it's much easier to write the labels. <laughs> um, and it's something really weird. And I just don't know enough about it to know what its potential is as a garden plant, say, in Melbourne. I don't know whether it'll be hardy enough. I've got no idea about it. But it's actually one of those things that is what keeps me interested in horticulture in the fact that there's something out there to learn about all the time. Mm -hmm. So I found out about a new tree that I know nothing much about. I'm now growing it. I've got to find out as I go along what its potentials are. I've got to try and encourage other people to buy some, to try it in different areas, to see what sort of tolerances it's going to have. Um, It it will probably never be a top-ranking popular plant, which is possibly a good thing. It'll never be a viburnum tinus. It'll never be a viburnum (laughs) tinus. Uh, And, um, you know, it's... And 
you know, I mean, admittedly, mine was given to me. But if you were going to buy a young Itoa from me, mm. it's probably going to cost you less than twenty bucks in a six-inch pot. Mm. Um, you wouldn't get a decent lunch with that money, and you've got something that you can be learning about and enjoying uh, for a long time potentially. Mm. And even if you lose it, you've learned something. Don't do that again. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so there's all those sort of sides to it. So yeah, so there you go. Mm. Yeah. And we, I mean, we do think trees, but there's of course all the uh, climbers and things. You know, the ornamental oh, grapes, which the grapes, the Virginia creepers, yeah, the Boston ivies—they're all absolutely stunning at the moment. Yeah. My front veranda, I've got Virginia creeper growing up the side of the front veranda, and I let it cascade down from above mm. the steps as you mm. go up the veranda, and you virtually have to part it to come up onto the yeah, veranda. Nice one. And the uh, the sun shines through it when you're on the veranda, so you're looking out through this blaze yeah. of scarlet. And just... the only time I get annoyed by it is when it's rained, and then I have to part the ways, and it's all wet and drippy. <laughs> <laughs> but it looks stunning. My favourite is um, the silver vein creeper, oh, Parthenocystis henryana. I think that's beautiful. absolutely gorgeous. Mm, yeah. you, you get a yeah. really good autumn colour off it. So it kind of looks it looks a bit like um, kind of looks a bit like. Boston Ivy, but it's a lot more dainty. Yeah, it's not yeah. quite it's, as rampageous as no, some of its relatives. It's very well behaved. Mm. It's very demure or something. It clings mm. very lightly. Yes, it, it's easy it, to peel off. It, it won't smother a surface in yep. leaves yep. either. So, so it's really good. One of the best places I've seen it planted actually is at Heidi, um, at Heidi Two in the gallery. One of the courtyards has it scrambling oh, yeah. up one of the big Besser block walls. Yeah, and when it goes, it's beautiful shade of red in autumn. Um, that red against the old you know, yes. big, big block stone wall, it looks knockout. It's mm. absolutely yeah. fantastic. It's a beautiful vine. Yeah. yeah. More it's, people should it's use one it. Of my Actually, it's interesting too because if you plant Parthenocystis henryana in the shade, it does what its common name suggests and it gets these beautiful you white veins yeah, that comes down the centre of each leaflet. Um, if you plant it out in the sun, it tends to lose the, mm. the silver right. look. But whether it's in the shade or the sun, it still colours beautifully yeah. in the autumn. It doesn't need to have high light levels to get bright red foliage. That's right. So if you've got it in the shade, you end up with bright red foliage with a silver vein running mm. down the centre of each mm. leaflet. And it is truly superb. I've got it climbing along my veranda like, like yep. you have your Virginia creeper by the sounds of it. Um, and it's just gorgeous. This mm. is the first year that it's really filled out well. Mm. Um, We've got to get the house painted so it's got to come off at oh, some no. point. Oh, no. But I'm just going to lay it on the ground and paint the house. And yeah. then well, if you're doing it yourself, it, it that's, that's fine. But if you bring the contractors in, <laughs> yeah, they'll be oh, they get annoyed. Yeah. You know, and, and especially if there's any little suction cuppy bits stuck. Uh, oh, there'll be a few of them. Yeah, I reckon there will be, James. <laughs> uh, uh, you know, people say to me, oh, but, you know, that Boston <laughs> Ivy, when you pull it off the wall, it's going to leave all those suction cups behind. And I said, I've got a cure for that. You don't, don't pull, pull it off, off the wall. wall. I quite yeah. like those little – because we, we moved the, the wall of our shed to get rid of the work shop portion of it um God, it was last easter that we moved that and the neighbors the neighbors boston ivy had started creeping up the side of the shed and so we've got all those little sucker marks yeah. on this wall of the shed and, and i quite like them yeah. i think they're quite they sweet. are a nuisance if you're trying to paint try, try to get them off yeah yeah because yeah, people that always people, people that visit they always go well, what is that pattern that you've put on the shed there and it's, oh well, you clever yeah, boy yes yes. <laughs> yes it's my installation yeah <laughs> Yes, oh, I guess we should invite listeners to call oh, us. Oh, please, yes, what a good idea. We, we do have one, but that number is 94190155. And um, on the line with us now is Pippa from Sydenham. Good morning, Pippa. Good morning and happy Easter to you all, of you course. You too. Now, um, you just really wet our lips, Steve, and you shouldn't come on because... Our bank account went down very quickly. Uh, that's my wicked and evil plan. No, I know this, but we all enjoy the game. 
uh, for 30 years. Now, Stephen, can you tell me about the Rowan Bird? Because I have a wonderful English magazine where it's uh, this desolately grey landscape with these brilliant berries. Yeah. And this woman cooking it up on her estate. And I was wondering, have no estate, but I do have a home in the garden. Yeah. How would it be in Australia? Uh, the Rowans are... I think a bit borderline in our Australian climate. Uh, they certainly wouldn't want to be out in 45 degrees with howling northwesterly winds going through because I think it would burn them. Um, but if you've got a spot where they get perhaps the morning sun and, and a bit of shade in the afternoon from the house or other large trees nearby, I think the rowans would be worthwhile having a crack at because, again, they're very useful small trees. They don't grow too big, so they're good for a, a small garden. Uh, they have pretty... Uh, ash-like foliage that colours nicely in the autumn, so you get beautiful autumn colour. You get lovely white flowers in the spring, admittedly with a slightly hawthorny smell to them, so they're not overly attractive smell-wise, but they're not there forever, so I don't worry about that, and they're up in the tree and it's not that obvious. Uh, And then you get these clusters of beautiful berries, and... Most of the European ones tend to be in shades of orange and red, but some of the Chinese hawthorn, uh, not hawthorn, some of the Chinese rowans uh, have berries that are white or pink, uh, cerise coloured. There's, there's a whole range. You can get yellow fruited ones. Uh, so there's a whole range of them. And if you plant a pair of them on either side of your front gate, they keep witches away. Handy, handy. Mm, yeah, yeah, it's one of those useful little tips. What if the witch lives there? Uh, well, then it keeps her in. <laughs> Um, So they are lovely little trees and and I wouldn't discourage people from growing them, but you just don't want to have them in the harshest conditions. No, well, thank you for that. I won't have one at all. All right. (laughs) Well, if you come up and see me, I'll convince you to buy something else. I will. (laughs) Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thanks, Pippa. And now we've got Gina in Chelsea. Good morning, Gina. Oh, good morning. Look, I have a small box hedge and there seems to be a lot of white... I don't know, somebody told me it's either mealybug or uh, aphids on it. Mm-hmm. Uh, can you help me, please? Um, it's very, not very big. Yep. Is, is it quite extensive, the, the, the yeah. white? Yes, on, on some of them, very bad. One, one is dying. Okay, one is dying, right. I would, I would, use, a, I would use like an eco-neem or something yeah. like that and give it a, give it a spray. Um, an eco-neem and a horticultural oil combination tends to work pretty well too yeah. and it's reasonably benign so yeah. it's not going to do too much harm i'm going to guess at this time of year it's more likely to be a mealybug than an than aphid yeah yeah i would have thought so, so. Yeah. Very, or perhaps um, a perhaps it, a mite it might be might red be spider it, it could might be, red be a mite, mite. Yeah, it could be maybe. red spider mite maybe mm. i think uh, i think the point is gina to determine what it is so that you can actually control it mm. it's very thick uh, down sort of near the bottom because it's only young there's a lot of thick growth near the bottom it's very uh, thick there and then i see on the top leaf little spots also yeah that okay. sounds, sounds like a mite like, sounds like mite damage yeah yeah, yeah i think it's mites uh, uh how would the neem oil go on mites i've never tried it with mites so i can't say for yeah. sure but it's a it's a good kind of general yeah, it's a general clean-up mm. thing, and it's not too toxic. No, it's not. So, yeah, I'd still, I'd still perhaps try that, but you'll need to spray so that you get it up underneath the foliage as well, so that you need to sort of soak the undersides of the leaves, because if it is red, if it's two-spotted mite or red spider mite or one of those mite mites, yeah. um, they live under the leaves, but they make these sort of little dots on the top of the leaves because they're killing tissue inside the leaves of the plant. Okay. And so they're actually underneath the leaves, so you need to get it sprayed up under. Okay, and uh, is this 
likely to happen often is oh, because I thought barks are very good, you know, don't have many um, disease or anything. Well, in general, they don't. No, no. It, it is unusual to get um, these sorts of issues with box. I think if you do clean it up, uh, yeah. it may be just a seasonal thing. It may not be as bad in other years. Um, but, you know, at the end of the day, you're going to have to make the decision as if it does keep recurring as to whether you're prepared to keep spraying or whether you need to start thinking about an alternative mm. to the boxes because uh, I'm always a great believer in um, making life as easy as possible for me. And if yeah. I've got to start spraying something on a regular basis to protect it, I start wondering whether it's worth all that time and effort. When, when I, if I get rid of it, and if I sometimes spray, I hear you say sometimes you can get rid of aphids with a, a strong water, you know, from the yeah, hose. You won't probably get rid of the mealybugs that way, although, uh, or the mites. Although having said that, mites tend to grow best where it's fairly dry sort mm. of conditions. So mm. if you do keep the undersides of the leaves wet... Um, it might deter them to uh, some extent. Yeah, to an mm. extent, but it's not going to be a cure-all. And, in fact, anything you do in gardening these days, unless you spray some toxic chemical, nothing is really a cure-all. Mm. It's a control. Mm. Right. And so we're controlling something so that it's not built up to an extent where it does major damage. Mm. Yeah, and, Gina, you probably want to come in at sort of twofold. You know, you want to control the mites or whatever they are um, and you might do that you know for the next month or so and then really work on the health of your plant because a healthy plant you know the pests and diseases aren't going to attack a healthy Mm. plant so you know apply your liquid seaweed and um, you know a bit a bit of feed and spring and um, mulch look them after well, them. Look yeah. after them well. Uh, and they can sort of shuck these things off to a certain extent. Mm. Because it is in a very sheltered spot uh, near a fence. Yeah. Yeah, well, see, that would encourage things like mite too mm. because it's giving that extra shade and extra mm. shelter from strong winds and other things because uh, they do like those sort of enclosed atmospheric things. And that's why they tend to be more common at the bottom of hedges and shrubs uh, and in the dense foliage parts because okay. that gives them the sort of habitat they're looking for. So, so far, I just gave them some, um, or oh, it's a multi-crop eco spray or something like that. Uh, but, uh, a pest spray. A yeah, pest spray. you ha- you have already done that. Did yeah, did you mean? Yeah, and yeah. and it has had no effect. Or uh, I think yes, I think it helped a bit. But, okay. Yeah. Uh, the issue you're going to have too is, of course, the foliage that's damaged isn't going to change in yeah, its look. Yeah. So even if you get rid of the bug, the leaves that have got the little <coughs> spots all over them, yeah. until they actually die and drop off the plant, that's going to stay there. Okay. So don't assume that you haven't got rid of them just because the leaves are still spotty because they won't lose the spots. And and the one one is very look getting very dry looks like it's dying. Will that be a comeback? Look, it's possibly it possibly could, but I'd be very tempted to whip the really bad one out okay. and, and get a fresh young plant again mm. because yeah. even if it comes back, it's going to take ages to catch up with the other ones. Right, so if you're determined yeah. to keep your box hedging, yeah. uh, I think I'd whip that one out, uh, dispose of it in a, in a sensible way so that you're not reintroducing the bug back into the garden again yeah. uh, and get a fresh young box yeah. bush. I think that would be much much more sensible. Oh, good. Uh, th- thank, thank you very much and enjoy the rest of your Easter. Same to you, me too. Thanks, Gina. Bye-bye. Bye. 
So did you have your Easter egg hunt in your garden? Yes, yes, the non-traditional Good Friday Easter egg hunt, yeah. What was it, um, just bottles of whiskey? No, 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 it was still Easter eggs. Um, no, that's yep. your garden, don't yeah, you? Yeah, that's right, yes, you go, you go hunting for bottles of whiskey. I know where mine are. Um, so, yeah, so we always have friends and family members who come up and they have a picnic in the garden. Uh, the issue is I'm going to have to find new family members and friends because we're running out of small children. Oh. This year we only had four small children and apparently the Easter bunny hit 100 eggs around my garden and so those those children are going to be so chocolated out for the next few weeks because I think they found pretty well every one of them. Uh, I'm going to go for a hunt myself tonight because you nearly always find one or two that <laughs> they didn't find. Yeah. Um, yeah, so we only had four small children. And so, yeah, so I need to find some young friends with children that, uh, that I can encourage to come along. So it might end up actually being just adults and bottles of whiskey. I don't know. Uh, I'll be there. Because, be yeah, most of my nieces and nephews are now all sort of young adults and things. And mm. I mean, we've had years of great fun mm. um, and it's one of my wicked and evil plans is that I'm going to be loved by all my nieces and nephews because I put on special events because mm. I never remember people's v- birthdays and I can remember being a child and my auntie Nell would send me a card with a two dollar note in it or something uh, and that was always nice mm. but it really didn't make that much difference to anything and eventually she stopped doing it as all my aunties and uncles did when you got a little bit older mm. and yeah it was just a nice gesture but it didn't make a big deal but when an aunt or an uncle set up some sort of event you could get involved in that you know you would always remember from childhood Mm. um, then you sort of ingratiate yourself with them because I'm sort of looking for somebody who look after me in my old age (laughs) Um, and um, yes that's all you nieces and nephews out there remember if you want to inherit you've got to look after Uncle Stephen (laughs) in his dotage Um, and um, so, you know, it's the sort of thing that all those kids will always remember. Mm. You know, no matter how old they get, they'll remember those Easter egg hunts at Uncle Stephen. So, um, yeah, and look, we enjoy the day. It's great fun. We have a whole pile of paper plates and, and glitter and stuff, and the kids all make um, Easter bonnets out of stuff. Mm. Uh, afterwards, we have a bit of a parade, and we pick a winner, and that's always a bit iffy because, you know, the children who don't win. I'm glad uh, most of it, my family's in Queensland yeah. because, oh, because I, don't on, remember, I don't remember birthdays or plan events for them, so... <laughs> I'm oh, kind of, I'm just, you know, I'm on, definitely on the bad uncle yeah. side of the Yeah, line. I think yeah. you probably are. Uh, You're going to be looking after yourself in your own <laughs> Yeah, that's right, exactly. Yes, I also do Halloween, by the way. So, you know, uh, an actual fact, there's plenty of local kids around that come and um, trick or treat us. Yeah. And we have a ball. Uh, we get dressed up. Um, so last year I was a goblin uh, and I've been a vampire and all sorts of things over the years and we drape cobwebs all over the front veranda and I have bats hanging everywhere and uh, should dress as Peter Dutton next year or something like that (laughs) there's a thought yeah something a little bit (laughs) non-traditional and um we play Rackman and Offside of the Dead on the on the sound system which is good Um, and we've got even a bat door knocker an old uh, cast iron one, a Victorian one that we found in a in a sort of antique junk shop, uh, which I'm very excited to own. Uh, and our front door is actually an old church door, mm. and it creaks. So when the kids knock on the door, they go bang, 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 bang and with the knocker, and, and Craig stands behind the door and opens it really slowly. Uh, and we've actually had small children run and scream and, and disappear <laughs> off the veranda. And I've heard I've heard kids out there going, "I got to the door this year, Mum." You know, so it's it's screamingly funny. We have a great time. So we love getting engaged with things, you know, and being mm. involved. I mean, mm. it keeps you young if you get involved. And we've got a few neighbours that are grumpy about Halloween, and they put signs out saying, "We don't do Halloween." Uh, and you think, oh, for goodness sake, you know, 
I know it's well, not. Well, there'll a... be trick then. Yeah, yes, yes, there will be trick then, yes. Um, so, you know, and the kids love it. We, we've actually had busloads arrive from Sunbury at our place. I have to buy sweets in, in vast See, quantities. See, that's a bit much, though. When they start bussing in people from not not, not just one suburb over, but, yeah, you know, from, but several from, away, yeah, that's, that's, that's just a little bit too much, I reckon. Well, you know, we sort of have this production line on the front veranda uh, of, of young children <laughs> coming up. And, yeah, I have to buy huge quantities of jelly rats and eyeballs and things. But uh, Yeah. But look, it's great fun. You know, we sit inside drinking red wine and waiting for the next knock, knock on the door, uh, and then we set the music going again. And uh, and what yeah. do you do with all the leftover lollies? Oh, there rarely the is many. And 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 being a sweet tooth, I can be seen with a jelly rat's tail hanging out of my mouth for a week afterwards. You know, so uh, I don't have any issues with de- dealing with the leftovers. But we've actually run out a couple of times, oh, right. and we've actually had parents who've kindly snuck us some lollies around the sideway. Um, it's probably uh, just out of their out kids' of their bag. Kids yeah. Bag. Yeah, and um, so we have actually run out. So, yeah, but look, it's great fun. To My get father's involved. cut off point for trick or treaters, and he's ruthless, ruthless, grumpy old Scottish man. Is um, if your voice is broken, then you're not getting anything. It's like, no, your voice is broken. Get out. <laughs> they I love it. Terrified. Right. Like, oh, okay. Yeah. All right, Mr. Beanie, I'm sorry. Yeah. <laughs> so, girls are fine then. Yeah, because, uh, yeah, yeah. Yes, you could be 21 and still get away with it. Uh, dear. Now, James, you've brought in, I will forgive you, a non red plant, a non autumnal plant. Non autumnal plant. Thank you, haven't bought any. I, I, well, I thought I'll do something a bit different and skip around the autumn theme. Uh, so, so, you know. So, you yeah. bought foliage. I brought foliage mm. this, this time, yeah. yeah what and. Have you got there? I was sitting here just thinking about Ooh, it. I know what that and is. And they're actually um they're actually all from South Africa. I didn't I didn't Ooh, me- I didn't mean go. I didn't mean to I didn't it mean to pick them all for like that reason. Sometimes. Um but they're all they're three foliage plants in my garden that um lend it interest at this time of year because I don't have a lot of um I have a bit of autumn color but um most of it's above head height in the form of a grape arbor. Um so I kind of looked at other plants to get a bit of interest in my little back garden at this time of year. And these are three of my favourites. Um, the first one's Cassonia paniculata. Oh, I love Cassonia. Sometimes called the cabbage tree. It's mm. just gorgeous. It has these beautiful big um, palmate leaves. They're, they're the size of a dinner plate. Um, they've got interesting margins. It's got a kind of a bluey hue to the yeah, green. It's, it's got a bit of a, yeah. Yeah, got yeah. a bit of a bloom on it. Furry. Is tough it as furry? tough as nails. No, no. No, it's it looks furry, furry yeah. but it's not. It's actually um, fairly smooth. And and this specimen in my garden actually um, uh, got f- well, my sister fell on it and broke the pot, and she oh, was. I'm and surprised you still got a sister. She was so <laughs> apologetic, and for weeks and weeks and weeks wouldn't wouldn't stop apologising. Yeah, she been until using I the whiskey her. Had she, or is <laughs> no, no, and, and it's, incidentally, um, but you know we repotted it into a bigger pot, and this year it put on oh, a good foot. See, she pruned it for of you. Growth. Yeah, <laughs> so I was saying, no, don't worry, don't worry, it'll be fine, it'll be fine. So it, it's it has these big palmate leaves on really long stems. Um, it's generally a single a single trunked um, plant, small tree, um, from the wilds of South Africa. Really nice. Looks great in a pot. Will mm. happily live in a pot for years and years and years. In fact, it tends to produce a big sort of almost lignotuber at That's the base. Right. So you get this yeah. big swollen base. That's absolutely uh, And gorgeous. it will almost naturally bonsai itself in mm. the pot. Mm, it does. Um, yep. uh, although once you release them into the ground, they do become very statuesque. Yes, they do. They mm. do. And there's the Cassonia Court courtyard at Melbourne University. Oh, yes. It's got a beautiful old... Last time I was there, it wasn't looking so good, so oh. I'm not sure how it's gone, but 
when I was when I was studying horticulture at Melbourne Uni, I used to go and make a point of visiting this Cassonia. It's called Cassonia Court in one of the old sandstone courts at Melbourne Uni, and it's this just this huge specimen of Cassonia. And you have to wonder really quite who impressive. thought to put that there yeah. in the first place. You know, it it's an odd it choice just, in a way, but it looked fantastic. Yeah. You know, really, really good. I haven't I haven't seen it for years, so I'm not sure how that one is looking at the moment. But last time I saw it, it wasn't looking brilliant. Um, but yeah, that's Cassonia paniculata, and another an oldie but a goodie. You see it in a lot of country gardens. Um, it's uh, Melianthus major. Um, it takes two years to get to a flowering stage. I grow mine for foliage only in a big pot, so I kind of cut it back to the ground at this time of year. Actually, um, and let it reshoot. Can I make a suggestion? I actually cut mine in summer. Okay, I do them in in high summer it can because look, then can in the winter. It looks fantastic yeah, because okay. you've got that regrowth before winter. Yep. And so I do the reverse with mine because right. I figure that I've got plenty of things of interest for me during in the, the summer, summer months. Anyway. Yep. But if I want some really good winter foliage, mm. Malianthus comes into its own then. Well, that's a good that's a good suggestion, actually. And I might I might actually give that a go. Yeah, and see I'd how give it, goes. it a try because it, it's really lovely as a winter foliage. Keeping the water up to it in the summertime so the bottom leaves don't die off and get all daggy is quite tricky. So yeah. having it as a winter foliage plant might be a good way around. Yeah. That, so that's a good yeah. One. Well, of course, in Europe they cut it down and put straw over it because it's not cold hardy enough. So that's the sort of normal accepted practice is mm. to cut it down for the winter. But I figure because it will grow through the winter here perfectly well, mm. that I can reverse the process. Uh, and it is. It's a wonderful plant because it's one of the few silver things that will grow quite well in shade. Yes. Yes. Absolutely. Yeah. It's, it's a gorgeous plant. It's one of my one of my favourites. Mm. It um, has a rather odd smell. Yeah. <laughs> How would you describe it? I, I always love people uh, yeah. asking people that because it's. It's such a – I always think kind of Vegemite or something it puts me in yeah. mind of. It's it's a really odd smell. And it's, one of its common names it's is cheese It's probably Vegemite mixed well. with Bathurst. Mixed with Bathurst, mixed with <laughs> Parmesan oil. cheese. You no, know, I was thinking sort of screeching tyres and the smell of rubber. <laughs> it, it does have a bit of that about yeah. it, doesn't it? It's a yeah. hard one to pin down. Yeah, so it's not actually a pleasant smell in some ways. No, no. no but no, it's but not a very obvious smell. Like, I've really had to crush that leaf to get it. You yeah. do, absolutely. Unless you fall on it. Yes, yes, yes. It, it didn't, just, didn't fall on that one. Yeah, 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 yeah It would have given it a summer prune then. And the, the only thing with Melianthus you've got to remember is in some areas it, it does go it weed. It can become a weed, yes. Yeah. yes. I don't think it's a vicious, nasty weed. No, I think it's only no. managed to become a little bit naturalised in a few places. More so, small subtropical areas, I think you yeah, would get a, you would but, get a uh, I, I think it's it. an indispensable garden mm, plant. Me too. I love I really Melianthus love major. Yep. And the last one that I've brought in um, is, a, is a dainty little climber um, with a really, really freakish perennializing organ. Um, it's I'm surprised di- you brought it in, actually. <laughs> well, it's I, it's going really well this year, so I'm, I'm happily going to cut a little bit mm. off it. Um, but uh, it's Diasauria elephantipes, the elephant's foot yam. <laughs> and the the cortex that it gets on it has this mm. corky, freaky, gnarly texture. Yeah. Um, Which is what you buy it for in it a way. It is, absolutely. absolutely. You don't buy I mean, it for the foliage. The foliage is pretty, but it's not but outrageous. It's, but it's, it's really But lovely. it's when it grows that it, that it really kind of catches your eye. Just oh, springs. Like, yeah. One minute there's just the cortex sitting there looking quite lonely, and the next minute, oh, my goodness, you've got a metre yes, of It sort of growth. looks like a dried-out cow pack or something. <laughs> well, sitting on the ground in a way. Maybe maybe some, some kind of intergalactic cow that's yeah, crash-landed yeah, on yeah. Earth. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, had well, a maybe, poo in a yeah. paddock. That's probably going to be. A we're, bit more. we're getting really Doctor Whoish now. <laughs> <laughs> but I, look, I really like. I really like it as a plant. It's it's extremely easy to grow. Um, it it 
it dies off over spring and summer. So yeah. you've got you've got the cortex sitting in a pot mm. um, on its own with no growth coming out of it, and then and then when it does start growing, AB is absolutely right. It just grows like the clappers. Oh yeah, yeah, almost it's overnight. Really it's suddenly quick. Up there. Yeah, you can sort it's of very sit there very and impressive. Watch it. <laughs> yeah, you can. You you can almost. Yeah. Um, and I like the little leaves, the little heart-shaped leaves. And they're um, a nice, glossy, yummy green, yeah. aren't they? They're really lively green. Generally not troubled by any pests or diseases. Very easy to grow. Um, and if you want to see the biggest one in Victoria, I think it's got to be close, um, Lyle at Roy Rama, he's got one sitting next to the sitting next to the counter where you yeah. go up and pay for all your treasures at his fabulous nursery at Roy Rama in Lara. Um, and it's, I don't, I don't know how old it would be, maybe 80, 80 mm. or 90 years old, but it's absolutely huge. Mine is mine is probably about the size of a big softball, maybe a bit bigger mm. than that at the moment. It was about the size of a 50-cent piece when I bought it two years ago. Yeah. So Yeah, they actually build up their cortexes reasonably Quite quickly. quickly. Mm. Yeah, yeah, I'm babysitting one for a friend who's moved from one house to another, and I guess it's... Oh, it would fill the top of a 12-inch bucket yep. quite easily. So it's got quite a good size cortex. Mm-hmm. Um, but I find it rather cold-sensitive at Macedon, so it's got to stay in the greenhouse. Yeah, right, and, okay. And then I have to sort of adjust its watering as it starts to shoot. I have to rush out and give it some something to drink because it's not getting any natural rain. Yep. Um, but I've got one growing in the garden at home that um, is another species, and I don't know what species it is. It came from the Drakensberg Mountains, so it mm. came from a much cooler area. Right. And it grows up through one of my hedges. And if you scratch all the leaf mould and stuff back, you can find the cortex. It's yep. quite big now, sitting yep. down in amongst the leaf litter and on the ground. Uh, and it sends up shoots four and five metres long, and it sort of yeah, rushes right. up through the hedge. But it, it has the opposite growth pattern. It tends to grow through the summer months mm-hmm. and die down in the winter. So it's obviously a, a much more cold-hardy species. Yep. Uh, but I've never been able to work out which one it is. Mm. Um, and, and their plants are really more for amusement than – I mean, you yeah. actually say you can use them in the garden, really, can well, you? I mean, a, apparently it did used to be eaten by, oh, did, by yes, local tribes yes, people. Yes, yeah. Well, in there's the, a lot of species of from South Madagascar Africa, that they're growing you'd as, have to as wait vegetables. Till, you'd have to wait 20 years for it yeah. to get to a stage where you could eat it and um you rich know. man's potatoes yeah <laughs> <laughs> these days absolutely yeah, yeah. yes but, yeah. but interestingly it's a it's a really varied genus um one of the one of the major food crops that jeremy colby williams grows in queensland is diasoria alata the winged mm. yam and it's called mm. the winged yam because it's got little flanges on the stem um and you should see the size of some of the tubers that he digs up to yeah. eat you know and the, the, literally the size of a wheelbarrow mm. yeah it's absolutely massive yeah, well see that that's what they're doing in madagascar now they've got a huge range in this genus of native ones yep. and on Twitter I've been following this guy who's working in Madagascar uh, with native plant re-vegging and, uh, and, and food plant sourcing from the wild mm. and they've been collecting all of the different yam species there uh, and cataloguing them and getting something and he's been showing pictures of these enormous yeah, tubers they've been digging mm. out of the ground just them. huge yep. but they tend to be underground so they're not ornamental mm. tubers mm. really uh, unlike the cortex of these ones that mm. you can have sitting up above ground level mm. Uh, mm. but yeah they get huge mm. tubers under them mm. absolutely massive and how many stems did you get off your Yours this year? Um, it grew a second stem this year. Okay. Yep. Okay. Yep. Yeah, I've, which I was I've very just had one about. stem which, which died off, but I've got it next to a, um, a Fokia edulis. Oh, yes. Which, yeah, you know, similar similar looking plant, but more stems. And it sounds, that's a, bit, still sounds green. a bit like a swear word. It so, does. Yeah, it's, yeah, nice. yeah, it's pretty Always fun. like those. Yeah, that's funky. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Another South African cortex plant. So, 
Yeah. So, and what, what about you, Stephen? What have you got over there? Oh, uh, well, apart from Viburnum japonicum, which we've already mentioned, a tree I absolutely love is the willow oak, mm. uh, Quercus um, felos. Uh, it's an American oak, uh, and people get confused because when you say it's a willow oak, they assume it's a willow. Mm. Uh, but it's not. It's an oak, uh, but it has narrow willow-like leaves, so hence the common name. It makes a fabulous lawn specimen tree, or it would be a really good street tree because uh, its acorns are quite small, so right. they're not as big and marble-like as some <laughs> other oaks are where you can go skidding across the pavement. <laughs> the foliage is also comparatively small. Uh, it goes wonderful colours in the autumn. And you just don't see it used very often. It's every bit as hardy as an English oak or a pin oak or any of those other oaks. Uh, And, in fact, I was up in Stanley last autumn up near um, Beechworth, Mm. and uh, one of the locals up there had raised a whole pile of Quercus phallus, and they've used it as a street tree in Stanley. Mm. And they're only young at the moment. They'd only be a couple of metres tall. Uh, But in years to come, it's going to be absolutely stunning, and it's going to give that town a unique character Mm. because they didn't plant just more pin oaks. Mm. So they've planted something that was a little different. And I love the thought of a town having a character about it because of an iconic tree that it has been planted. Mm. So instead of planting the same as the next town, they've done something different. Uh, I think in due course, Stanley is going to be stunning Gorgeous. with their autumn culling trees. So Quercus Fellos, which is P-H-E-L-L. OS, uh, the willow oak. It's a North American species of oak, and it's a lovely shade of russety reds. Uh, some years it goes more yellow, mm. uh, so it does vary in colour. I think it will colour every bit as well as a pin oak in Melbourne, so mm. if you want a tree that could still colour quite well, but something a little different. And the shade that it casts because of its small leaves is a nice dappley shade as well. Mm. And mm. it makes a sort of an egg shaped tree. It's not a hugely broad-spreading tree like an English oak would be or an Algerian oak, Um, but it doesn't have the sort of sweepy down branches that the pin oak has. Mm -hmm. So I think it has actually a good structure for a street tree. I missed the height of it. Oh, it... it, Well, I often ask people how long they anticipate living uh, (laughs) when we talk about the height of trees. Um, If you planted a willow oak in the garden, uh, you could expect it to be up around about five metres in 10 years to 12 years. Uh, But potentially it could grow to 10 to 20 metres tall, so it could make quite a large tree. Mm. Uh, uh, I don't think it's quite as big as what a pin oak can get to. So I think Mm. it's a little bit more... um, manageable tree uh but it is a beautiful thing so that's the willow oak quercus phallus and i guess the other one i really wanted to talk about is my bright pink autumn color mm-hmm. uh which is on a plant that is known as euonymus alatus the cork wing spindleberry mm-hmm. from china and it has the most outrageous cerise pink autumn foliage and i always find offbeat autumn colors rather entertaining because you expect yellow you expect orange you expect red although Mm. orange can be hard to get in a good clear color Mm. Uh, but when you have something that's hot pink in autumn it's something quite different Mm. Uh, i've also got a plant that i grow that goes creamy lemony colored with violet and and a real proper purple violet not a reddish sort of purple Um, and it always looks fantastic Calicarpa japonica but the euonymus is a shrub it only grows to a couple of metres tall it has these wonderful wings of corky bark the stems themselves are a feature Mm. aren't they yeah when it's bare in the winter it still makes a remarkable feature in the garden Mm. and in fact if you can plant it with a blank background behind it like a a, a white wall or something like that the branches stand out superbly against Mm. a blank surface and Mm. they look fabulous in the winter it will occasionally produce little pink berries on it but it's not actually a heavily fruiting variety it's really for its autumn foliage it's slightly layered form it will get sort of 
um, a sort of a tabulated form to the tree mm. or shrub, and then these beautiful wings of corky bark. Uh, the only issue with the wings of corky bark is you've got to make sure that there's no ladies with secateurs who are floral artists that come into your garden <laughs> uh, in the middle of winter because they'll be off to do some ikbana before you know it. Uh, so, because it, it would be a very useful plant for picking the stems. Yep. Uh, How do you propagate it? Uh, it's generally raised from cuttings. Okay. Uh, I can grow it from softwood cuttings in the greenhouse during the late spring, early summer. Right. You could raise it from seed, uh, but you don't tend to get a lot of seed from it. Right. Uh, it's probably not one of those things, though, you can shove a piece in the ground and grow it. You probably need to have a misspray system yep. with a little bit of bottom heat and, you know, those things to, to grow it easily. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I find it quite easy from cuttings. So so that's Euonymus alatus, and I can never spell Euonymus, so I'm going to read it off the label so that I can spell it properly. It's E-U-O-N-Y. M-U-S, Euonymus. And it's a big genus. I mean, there's evergreen ones, deciduous ones, climbing ones. Uh, There's a whole range of Euonymus. Some are grown for autumn foliage. Some are evergreen. You can get variegated evergreen ones. Um, uh, Some are grown mainly just for their berries, and some have stunning berries. There's some really beautiful ones for for their bright pink or white seed coats. Mm. Uh, So I think it's an underrated genus, and uh, we should all be looking at it a bit more. Wonderful. Looks like a fair plant. Okay. Oopsie daisy, sorry about that. Let's go to Gloria in Boleyn. Good morning, Gloria. Oh, hi. Um, I'm just gathering my thoughts. I know <laughs> the feeling. I, I got caught up in something online. Um, okay, so look, one thing, uh, James, you're talking about the Cassonius courtyard. Yes. Um, now, it actually collapsed, that Cassonia. Right. Oh, dear. Okay. Quite a few years ago. Remember how they always parked their bikes under it? Yes. Anyway, they collapsed, but they've put another Cassonia. So they've replanted. Replanted. Oh, fantastic. Well, that will then mean it can still be called the Cassonia Courtyard, (laughs) which is good. Yes. What you've got to do to retain the name. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) But the other thing is, um, when you're talking about Cassonias, when we bought this house 30 years ago, uh, there was a, a pot in the back garden with this strange plant in it that looked a bit like an elephant trunk mm-hmm. that's grown to about, oh, I don't know, 30 metres, maybe more. And it's the Castonia spicata. Spicata, mm. yeah. Oh, it's a fascinating plant. Yes, I don't find that one hardy at Macedon, but I can grow paniculata because right. it comes from higher altitudes. Mm. And I've got one of those that must be three or four metres tall in the garden at home now. Mm. Three or four metres? Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, and it's doing quite well. And I just recently realised I'd planted it under the power line oh. <laughs> <laughs> without <laughs> thinking. Uh, so it might need a little prune occasionally. <laughs> so is your spicata in a pot still and it's it that big? It was in a pot. Oh, it was, right. It, yeah, grew, dramatically mm-hmm. outgrew the pot. We just let the sides collapse and then it just grew. Um, but anyway, why I was calling is <coughs> two things. Um, Stephen was talking about the Chinese quince and the Chinese pistachio. I yep. think. You didn't mention the heights. What height would they get to? Well, I think I did mention the pistachio would probably get to four to five metres. Okay. Uh, the quince would be pushing to get much above four metres, but it's, mm. I guess it's possible. But I would say three to four metres for the quince within a respectable time. And it has quite a spread on it when it gets going. So oh, right, as a young right. tree, it will grow quite upright. And then I think with weight of fruit sometimes, it sort of starts to pull <laughs> it over. Uh, and so you'll get this sort of wonderful sort of gnarly, sort of like an old apple tree look, mm. you know, that sort of wonderful sort of 
uh, centenarian look about them mm. uh, comparatively quickly. I love picking them and putting them in a fruit bowl and they just scent a whole room. Mm. And they look lovely. Gorgeous. Uh, really lovely. Gorgeous. So it gets quite wide as much as It can, but, I mean, we all own a pair of secateurs. <laughs> and so we can make things, you know. I, I mean, people don't often ask how big something grows, but they don't often ask if you can prune it and control mm. it. Uh, and a lot of these things you can. I mean, there's some trees you shouldn't prune because you're going to ruin the shape like silver birches with their tops cut off that you see quite regularly or liquid ambers with no top. Um, but the things like the, the quince, you could almost prune it as you would your other fruit trees mm. if you really wanted to. So you could, in fact, control it quite easily. Or invite young children to come along and swing on it. And yeah, and they'll snap it off and it'll, <laughs> it'll be fine. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, now, the other thing is I want to... I'm Not many people calling, so I can ask you a few things. Um... I want to move a couple of maples, mm-hmm. which, and they're fairly small. They're only about maybe a metre and a half now, two metres. And also um, Alphonse Carr bamboo, which is small, but it's in the wrong spot. Mm-hmm. When? Well, the maples during the winter. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, no, no problem with that. You should see some of the maples that come into my nursery from the wholesale tree growers as bare-rooted trees. <laughs> they look like they've been hoiked out with somebody's ute. You know, they, they, <laughs> they've got so few roots left on the bottom of them, and, uh, and yet I rarely ever lose one. So mm-hmm. they are fairly tough things. They will cope with shifting quite well. You don't need to take the soil with them. The only thing you need to do is when you relocate them is make sure you water the soil in around the roots well so that you don't leave any air pockets. Okay. So that's what I would do with the maples. Um, uh, What was the other thing we were shifting? Uh, Oh, the the bamboo. Dig a very big hole for the maple? No, you don't need to. I mean, if if they're about two metres tall, I would try and get at the full diameter of the root system, about a metre of, um, of roots out if you can, so half a metre each side of the, the tree. Uh, the roots will only be very 20 rooted. centimetres yeah. at the most into mm. the ground, so it won't go down very far, so they should be quite easy to deal with. Great. And the bamboo, I like to move or divide bamboos in the late winter, early spring, just when the weather's about to start turning into slightly warmer weather. So August, September is the time I divide all my bamboos. It would also be the time I would dig one up and shift it. Okay. Um, Tiger grass? Tiger grass, much the same. In fact, anything in the grass family tends to be better lifted, divided, shifted, fiddled with, anything you're likely to do with them in that late winter spring period. Great. Now, actually, why I called you is I've got most... I've got the... Sedum. It's got this greasy, sooty black. Yeah, it's good. it's got mould on it. Mm. Is uh, that mould? Is it? And look, they're going to die down any minute. So I wouldn't be worrying about it particularly. If it was something that was an evergreen plant that was getting that sort of sooty mould on it, I'd probably want to deal with it. Mm. Uh, but it's a bit like zucchinis at this time of the year. They're all going to go mildewed uh, and they're going to collapse anyway. Oh, okay. So I wouldn't be too worried about it. I would just clean them up when it's looking at their worst. Uh, so just cut it off a ground level, chuck it all in the compost, or if you're a bit worried about spreading the mould, we'll then discard it in another way. I tend to throw everything in the compost. I don't worry about, you know cleaning up every rose leaf with a black spot on it and putting it in the bin. I mean, it all goes in the compost for me. Um, so do visitors who die at the dinner table, you know, you waste nothing Does around that our place. No, not often. <laughs> um, but, um, yeah, so anything that's compostable gets composted uh, in my garden. Uh, so if they're really looking scruffy, it wouldn't even hurt to cut them down now mm-hmm. uh, and discard you know, all the top. It's not all the sedum, by the way. It's only maybe just a few. Yeah. Uh, oh, well, look, take those out when you see them. Yep. 
sorry. Never apologise to your humour. We enjoy it. Uh, anyway, look, thank you very much. That's a pleasure. Okay. Thanks, Bye-bye. Gloria. Bye. Bye. Yes, I've been looking for an opportunity to use the sedum joke for a long time. <laughs> there you go, you've done it. <laughs> you are listening to the 3CR Gardening Show. I'm A.B. Bishop and with me in the studio is Stephen Ryan from Dixonia Rare Plants and And James the Comedy Festival. Beattie and the Comedy Festival, <laughs> that's right. Um, so, yes, we're running through till 9.15. If you've got a gardening question, give us a call on 94190155. So now who's planting what in the veggie garden at the moment? I'm not planting anything because I haven't had time oh, right. and mm-hmm. I'm feeling really tense okay. because I haven't got my broccoli in, I haven't got my broad bean seeds in uh, and our local hardware store where I used to buy all that sort of gear from is virtually gone now. Oh, okay. So it means a trip to Sunbury right, uh, right. to get all my requirements mm-hmm. and I just haven't had the time to, to zoom in and get the seed and the, and, and the seedlings and things that I need mm-hmm. but I certainly will be planting them ASAP because mm-hmm. I'm already running late for the, as far as I'm concerned for the broad beans and, and broccoli. I normally try and get them in a bit earlier than this. Yeah, okay. But we've had a well, I've had hectic season. I've had opera in the garden. I've had garden openings. I've had all sorts of things going on. And so, although I said earlier that I can rest on my laurels, the vegetable garden is the one place I can't yeah, okay. because I'm already running late with stuff. Mm. So yeah, so certainly I need to get those in. I want to get some fresh silver beet and spinach and things in. Yep. So I'll be doing that as soon as I get the chance. Uh, I might put in some salads as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't mind the odd winter salad, so um, some of that will go in if I can get some. I might even put in some coriander, but it often runs to seed for me no matter what time of the year mm. I put it in. Yeah, I just sowed some of that yesterday, actually, yeah. and and I, I get pretty lucky with it. Do doesn't, you? It doesn't yeah. tend to bolt very well, very quickly in my uh, garden. Well done. Mm. No, I, I struggle with it a bit. Mm. Uh, I mean, I still get some coriander, and I mean, I'm not doing the sort of cooking that I need coriander the in. The flowers on it are gorgeous as well. well I really pretty. like the flowers. I actually quite like to let quite a number of veggies and go herbs seeds. and things. Things go yeah. to seed. Well, it's good for the insects. It yep. is good for the yeah. insects. Any brassicas that I let go to seed and yep. flower, the you know all the bugs come in and mm. pollinate them and mm. enjoy them and all that stuff. I might add the brassicas. I throw the flowers in the salads. Yeah, yeah, they're actually very too. tasty. Mm. Oh, and they taste exactly like the brassica, don't they? <coughs> well, they do, but yeah. slightly sweet because yeah, there's yeah. that little bit of nectar in the flower. Nectar, mm. yeah. And so I'll throw them in salads just to freak out my iceberg lettuce <laughs> and tomato <laughs> friends. <laughs> All right, we have got Meredith from the eastern suburbs. Good morning, Meredith. Oh, hello. I was wondering if you could help me. Um, I've got some snapdragon seedlings that I planted a few weeks ago, and they're doing really well. But when I went out and looked at them yesterday, they've got a lot of raised brown spots. Oh, they got rust. Mm. Have they got... Oh, right. Yeah, yeah. Snapdragons are very prone to rust. Mm. Oh, I didn't know And that. so, it, yeah, well, snapdragons and hollyhocks are two of those plants that you can almost bank on rust finding its way in. <laughs> I mean, they're doing breeding with snapdragons and hollyhocks to try and breed more rust-resistant strains, uh, but I don't think they've got terribly far with it. I think they're still pretty prone to rust. Mm. And... The only thing you can really do is spray them with a fungicide if you want to keep them, and I don't really uh, recommend it because fungicides actually one of those things people see as benign, but they worry me because they're not terribly mm. specific, mm. so they'll knock out good fungi with yeah, bad. That's right. And so you know, and there's lots of good fungi, mostly yeah, good fungi. Yeah, mostly yeah. good fungi, mm. especially those ones that are poisonous when you've got visitors who arrive that you weren't expecting. Um, <laughs> that go in the compost. Go in later. the compost. You're getting yeah. very dark. Yeah. Dark yeah. Today, aren't well, you? it's Easter. What can I say? <laughs> um, but anyhow, so. Um, 
if it were me, if I had a few snapdragons there, I'd either just leave them alone and let the rust have its way with them. They'll still probably come up and flower unless it gets really bad, or I'd just pull them out and plant something else. Yes, well, they, they are starting to flower. They, yeah, they well, just do. enjoy the flowers. I mean, the rust isn't going to spread to masses of other things in your garden unless you've got hollyhocks as well. Um, and, I mean, the leaves will look a bit scruffy, but if you can ignore the foliage and enjoy the flowers, uh, and they're only used as annuals anyway, so you'll be pulling them out in due course, and then you know now perhaps that snapdragons aren't the best <laughs> thing for you to grow. Yes. Do I have to... Do, you know, are they going to affect the soil? If I pull them out no. and plant something else, I no. don't have to worry. No, no. As long as you don't put more snapdragons in, um, <laughs> you should be fine. So you could put in some violas or you could yeah. put in some calendulas or mm. you could – I mean, there's lots of – some of the primulas, some of the winter flowering primulas would be rather pretty. So if you're, if you're wanting to put in some pretty flowers for the winter, yeah. uh, you've still got time to plant all those things. Okay, good. And you won't, and they won't be hurt by the rust from the snapdragons. Well, I'll, I'll thank you. I, I know I'm not going to use the fungicide. Yeah, well, I, I wouldn't either. <laughs> I mean, we've got to give people the alternatives. But yeah. uh, as far as I'm concerned, I try and avoid. I try and avoid any sort of chemical in things yeah. in the garden. Unless I mean, you absolutely have to. You know, there's no real purpose in it, particularly if it's something that's annual, because. It's not like you're trying to save a tree that might be there for 100 years. I know. Um, so I might go to chemical warfare if it was something as precious as a major tree, but mm. I certainly wouldn't do it for annual seedlings of vegetable and flower types, and I'd never put anything on my vegetables because no. I don't want to eat whatever I've sprayed on them. Mm. No, no, I don't think it's worth it. But uh, thank you very much. That's a pleasure. Okay. Thanks, Bye. Ruth. It's Bye. rather sad that snapdragons do that because they're cheery. They are us. very cheery. Yeah, I love them. I think they're this the cutest things. I can remember as a kid making them open their mouths mm. and also popping mum's fuchsias at her annoyance. <laughs> um, that was one of those things as a kid I liked doing. That's how you learned. Yeah, what well, it is, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. smack across the back of the head because I popped all the fuchsias again. Um, uh, impatience, that was my thing. Oh, the yes, the, the, the seed said yeah, yeah, heads yeah. on the impatience. Yes, I still quite enjoy making those yeah. pop. And I still remember as a child the old Canterbury bells the big companionas um the gardener who was in the big property opposite where we lived on our small property um he used to grow a lot of canterbury bells in the garden and i can still remember picking the flower with a bee in it and holding it closed and chasing his daughter around the garden <laughs> with, with, a, with a bee in the canterbury bell buzzing its head off and being really annoyed with me um and she used to squeal quite appropriately and, and it, was, it was great fun um, so mission accomplished yeah mission was accomplished yes yeah. i'm sorry janet if you're listening all right, let's go to Ruth and Bentley. Good morning, Ruth. Oh, good morning, everyone. Um, I have a Maya lemon tree, and the fruit has developed those tiny spots on the skin, and I know I have to lift the skirting up a bit more, mm-hmm. but what can I do otherwise? Just ignore it, or what do you do? Is the fruit still usable? Mm. Um, yes, some of it is, yes, mm. yes. Yeah, well, I'd certainly clean the worst fruit off the tree. Uh, yeah. So if you've got a lot of that sort of um, rotty patches on them, just get rid of those ones. Mm. So clean them off. You're right, clean the skirt up. What What else would you do, James? Again, I'm not mad keen on spraying, so... No, um... I'd, I'd just go hard on the soil as well. Well, yeah. well, this time of year they're going dormant, so yeah. there's not really. But you much could get uh, you could regard. perhaps get some trace elements onto the ground. Yeah, absolutely. Um, that can sometimes help those mm. things, and certainly you know 
make sure the moisture's been getting down. Um, mm. Once we get even a little bit more rain, I'd, I'd even put your mulches on too because it'll stop fungal sort of things mm. leaping yeah. from the soil back up into the tree a bit. So I'd get a nice strawy mulch or something onto yep. the ground. Absolutely. Uh, and again, I'm not mad keen on spraying with fungicides and stuff to deal oh. with the issue, but trace elements will sometimes correct mm. those sorts of things. Um, and, and as AB said before, just make sure that your tree's in good fettle. Um, yep. They so, really don't like competition either. So if you've got other stuff in the ground nearby it maybe consider shifting it from it as well because that can right. that can really help with their vigor as well they're, they're i hate the waste of space though <laughs> i can't help myself i've got to cram things in under my citrus trees and i actually grow clematis through my citrus trees i have some of the big flowered yeah, jackman nice. ice type Beautiful. hybrids and i've got blue ones with my yellow fruited citrus and purple ones with my orange fruited uh, citrus see what you've done there oh you know now this is this is this is a set successional flower color in the garden um and of course because i can cut those right back to nothing in the mm, winter mm. uh they sort of don't do any harm yeah, they're, okay. they're actually quite good yeah, right. um, so oh, well i can't do that i've got a huge nectarine tree um, a few metres away from it. Yeah, well, you obviously yeah, can't okay. shift a yeah. huge nectarine it's tree. Uh, so I think you're going to have to live with what you've got to a certain extent. But I just get rid of the worst of the fruit and keep your tree healthy. That's about all I reckon you can do. Okay, thank you. That's Bye. a pleasure. Thanks, Ruth. Yes, I can never quite see the point of a Maya lemon, though. Not as good in a gin and tonic. Ah, uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm they're, with they're lime, sweet. lime in a gin lime. and tonic. Yeah, well, yeah. I would use my lime as well. Um, <laughs> but... Yeah, they're sort of sweetish, so they're mm. sort of, I don't know, they're the lemon you have when you're not having a lemon. I don't know quite what they are. So I'd much prefer to plant a Eureka or a Lisbon, personally, but there you go. Well, there you go. Uh, good morning, Alan in Heidelberg. Hi, oh, good morning. Um, happy Easter, all, all, all. You um, too. Steve, your recipe, I, I keep forgetting the quantities for electric soda. Oh, for the citrus trees. Yeah. Yeah, I can only do this in the old measurements because yeah, it makes absolutely no sense in grams and things. Yeah, so you point. you measure your tree yeah, uh, and for every foot in height, you measure out two ounces of washing soda. Two ounces. Per foot in height of tree. Yep. Then you go around the outside of the um, drip line and you poke holes in the ground with a crowbar yep. and it's not specific how many holes you have to poke. And then you get the crystals and you just divide it up between the holes and then cover them over. You don't bother putting water on top? No, no. They, they will quite quickly dissolve oh. with rain and what have you. So you just put the crystals straight down in the holes. And do you, do you think, I was thinking about this recipe, do you think it's because um, it's, uh, it's an alkaline um, product that it's going to let the um, trace elements release into the soil? Look, I have no real knowledge about how washing soda works on citrus trees. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've been warned not to use it on other trees. It oh, really? seems to work superbly on citrus. Um, uh I don't know what the chemical constituents are exactly of washing soda. I think somebody did find out for me once and it went straight over my head, uh, not being a chemist but a gardener. Uh, And I got the original recipe from a lovely guy whose name was George Vaffiopoulos. And George was the director of the Geelong Botanic Gardens many, many years ago. And he had the biggest lemon tree behind the director's residence I've ever seen in my life. And he had lemons that were the size of grapefruit and they were all thin-skinned. That wasn't all skin and pith and, and a little lemon inside. These were stunning lemons. And he did it twice a year with washing soda. And he, he was the one that gave me that particular recipe. And he did it sort of around about February, early March. Uh, and then he did it again in sort of September. Mm-hmm. 
and that's what he did with his citrus trees, and he did it every year, and I've never seen a lemon tree than, uh, like the one that used to be behind the director's residence <laughs> at Geelong. It was just outrageous. And, of course, washing soda was one of those things ladies used to use in the, in the laundry to wash their clothes with, and I've got a feeling that the old washing soda was thrown in under the lemon trees, mm. and, and this is how they noticed. worked it out, yeah, okay. you know, that, in fact, it seemed to be having an impact on the, on the, on the citrus trees. Mm. Um, and I recommend it be uh, above and beyond peeing on your lemon tree. <laughs> <laughs> Always do that as well. Yeah. <laughs> but, but I've got a question. Um, do, do you think it'll work on okay on mandarins as well? Mandarins benefit. Yeah, any citrus. Yeah. <clears throat> Seems to work with citrus, but I just wouldn't use it on anything else. Uh, not that I have, but I was warned against it, so I'm just warning everybody else against it. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I mean, it's some sort of basic salts that are in it that. Yeah. Possibly the citrus need mm. or like. I don't mm. quite know what it is, um, but it certainly seems to work. I was reading Alan Searle's book on the, um, the home doctor, and he's saying recommending that um, the alkaline really helps to release all the um, the um, trace elements. Yeah, the look, that could well be what it's about. I really yeah. don't know. And of course, yeah. citrus trees acidify their own soil around them, yeah, they do. so mm. the ground becomes quite acid, like with pine yeah. trees. Yeah. Uh, so maybe they do need a little of that alkalinity just to sort of balance the trace elements a bit. Mm. So it could be that. I don't know. Yeah. But right. uh, well, I do right believe point. in using things that work and not necessarily needing to know all of the answers sometimes. I, I like to know these sort of things, though, that's all. Yeah, well, <laughs> if you find out, you can tell me. Okay, <laughs> good on you, mate. Forget again. And then I'll forget again, yeah. <laughs> good on you. Thanks, Thank you. Alan. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Yes, the old washing soda thing. I said that once, I don't know, about 20 years ago on this program, and every so often it crops up again where people want to know again what it was that I had recommended. Yeah, well, if it works. It does. Yeah. See, I, I had a lemon tree that was in a pot that had been lost at the back of, the, of my old family nursery way back. I don't even know why we were stocking citrus trees that year. Um, and it had three yellow leaves on it. That's all it had left when I found it. I stuck it in the ground. This was at our old nursery right up the top of the mountain. Mm. Um, And I gave it the washing soda treatment, and by next spring it was fantastic. Right, yeah, okay. So Mm. I can only go by the results I've had. Very interesting. So there you go. And James, what about you? What um, I know you've been putting a few veggies in the garden. Yeah. You I, promised me broccoli I, and now uh, Well, I know, not I know. I, I've, I, I'm constantly waging war with blackbirds in my garden. Um, oh, yes, they are a pain, aren't they? When you raise your own seedlings at home and you come out one morning to discover that they've been completely decimated by blackbirds digging around, um, can push you to the edge sometime. But mm-hmm. rather than get violent, I just I, I, I extensively net all of my vegetable beds. It's for frustrating, the first, isn't it? For yeah. the first few weeks of their life, they just they need to be protected from yep. those bloody birds. Yep. Otherwise, they'll just they completely get a good decimate root system them. And yeah. can hold themselves up. So I did sow you a punnet of broccoli, but yeah. I had to I had to actually use it myself yeah. because my first few I'll, I'll, <laughs> got completely destroyed. I'll wait till, to get some broccoli itself. <laughs> yeah, yes, you can grow the broccoli <laughs> and, right. and give but AB the, the broccoli. The variety itself, though, I always give it a plug because I've grown quite a few sprouting broccolis over the mm. years. But this one, it's an F1 hybrid called Happy Rich. Um, I think diggers have started selling it as well, um, so it's quite easy to source the seed for it. Um, it's but a, you wouldn't buy it as a seedling? I've never seen it as a seedling yeah. in a nursery, um, which is a real shame because it, prolific doesn't even begin to do it justice. Um, yeah. It's really it's, – it's fast. It produces huge amounts of heads. You can eat the leaves as well. You can eat the whole plant. Um, 
Yeah, and the blackbirds do. <laughs> <laughs> no, they just dig it up. Yeah. the grubs underneath. Yeah, it. But yeah. that's that's one of my. I've got a couple of kale varieties in as well. Um, spinach. Oh, I you're like going to be so spinach. healthy. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Fantastic. You'll be bouncing yeah. with vigor. I'll have hipsters knocking on the door. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, that is all we've got time for. Ooh, Once time again, time has flown. Yes, time to go off and eat some more chocolate. Uh, yeah. So that is all for now. Thanks to Rosemary for warming the phones. Thanks to Stephen and James for sharing your knowledge. And thanks to you, the listeners, for tuning into the three. CR Gardening Show. My name is A.B. Bishop and we'll be here again at the same time next week. So until then, just remember that a weed is simply a plant that has mastered every survival skill except how to grow in rows. <laughs>